Hello, welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hooker. Uh, start, starting the episode off strong with Patreon updates, baby. We have a bunch of stuff going on and we kind of wanted to, I think we've been alluding to it for a while that we have some stuff that we're working on for the Patreon. I think on a, on a high level, the thought is <laughs> very, very zoom call terminology. Uh, <laughs> On a high level, to circle back to this. <laughs> Sorry, what if like this whole time doing the show, there were like four silent employees like in the <laughs> recording process, like muted video off, and like yeah. this has all just been meetings. One video on eating their yeah. big salad. Yeah. <laughs> Subtle Seinfeld reference, very yeah. good. Um, <laughs> anyway. anyway, yeah, what what we've been uh, thinking about recently, I think, is just you know the the Patreon is is an interesting place for us because uh, at least our our philosophy around it hasn't changed since we first launched it. We first launched it with this idea that like we, we didn't <laughs> to be perfectly frank, we didn't plan on starting one until people started asking for one. Yeah. It was, I think in 2019, which was a year into the show, multiple people DM'd us being like, Hey, is there a place to support the show? Which like, honestly, up until the last couple years, I don't think we were thinking about like having a budget or finances really <laughs> right. at all. Yeah, no, not at all. It wasn't until we realized like, oh, okay, like we're doing this, long term we need to pay aj their their standard rate we need to like maybe account for how many games we're purchasing and now we have ambitions to eventually do it full time there was a while though where we were like really kind of almost intimidated by the prospect of a patreon i think yeah. like and and again like you were alluding to like we don't want to paywall content that feels like standard or expected from the show like mm -hmm. not that the Patreon content won't be stuff we're proud of, but like we want it to feel extra. We want it to feel like if you want more, if you want this, then it's here. Yeah. For those who are able to support the show. So I think a big challenge has been like, how do we a like finding the time and the energy to sustainably support the Patreon? Because I think in the early years when we started making episodes for it, it was it was kind of hard to like balance doing the show and doing the monthly bonus and figuring out what the monthly Patreon episode was. Yeah, I think we actually found a really good rhythm in the past year. And now that we've done the big 3DS special, which is sort of like the swan song of like an era for the Patreon, I think we have a better and clearer idea of what to do in that space moving forward. That was all well said, man. You really, you really nailed it. I, uh, um, I mean, it's a Zoom call. I got to put on my best. Uh, that's true. You, yeah, suit. Steven's wearing a full suit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it's just like the mask. Um, <laughs> it is a mustard full suit. Okay. Uh, somebody stop, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> somebody stop me. <laughs> Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, this is this will be the first time I've said we're announcing Patreon updates that doesn't also involve us shifting all the tiers around. <laughs> the tiers are staying the same. Um, our our thought process recently has been like, okay, now now that we've kind of gotten our feet wet and we've figured out a way to kind of be a little bit more sustainable in terms of what we're doing on the Patreon. How do we expand that? How do we like present new and fun ideas that we're excited about? Because our whole thing has always been, we won't make stuff for the Patreon unless we're like excited about it. Cause we don't want you paying for something that we're like, Ugh, I can't believe we have to do this. Right. Like an obligation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, which I'll, I'll be frank. I think in like the first year of doing Patreon exclusive stuff, it got to a point where like you, me and AJ would be hanging out in a group chat and being like, Oh my God, what do we do for the Patreon this month? Which, 
which is why we eventually kind of took a step back from it for a while. But now I think we're in this better rhythm and this better cadence. So we figured out kind of what we want to do. Uh, so just to explain the tiers again, really quick, we have this $1 tier called the Amuse Bouche, which is essentially every patron bonus episode we've made up through the 3DS episode. And that's like the final one. That's the final piece of content that will be added to the Amuse Bouche tier. So that's like, if you want to back the show, I, I, I find a lot of other Patreons have like a $1 entry tier, which usually doesn't come with anything. And we were like, wouldn't it be nice if you had that same tier, but you got something out of it? Uh, so the idea was all of the previous patron bonus content is just available there. So that's everything we made up through 2022. And that includes the immortality bonus and then eventually the 3DS bonus, which is now the last thing. And there's some stuff there that I'm really proud of. Like, I think our making of the show episode was really fun. Uh, yeah. We have the Persona 3, 4 and 5 episode. But anyway, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff there that I, I'm glad will be like the most available yeah and then then we have our five dollar tier which is kind of like the new entry point for bonus content which just to say off the top one of the things that's included in the five dollar tier is a link to an air table which is essentially like a big spreadsheet of every game we've ever talked about when those games came out what platforms are available for every single episode of the show what games were discussed in those episodes along with also all of our game of the year lists and our lists for ideas of like future patron and bonus episodes. Oh, and also a calendar of all the upcoming game releases that we're excited about. Uh, we get this question a lot like, hey, have uh, Stephen and Brendan talked about X game or Y game on the show before? That is literally why that Airtable exists. Like that's why that's there is, is to answer that question for you. So if you are ever like, I want to hear them talk about X, Y or Z game, you can just go to the Airtable and search for that game and see what episodes we talked about it on. Also, recently I made a post for $5 patrons that is just the link to the Airtable. So if you ever yeah. lose it, it's always there. For whatever reason, like it was pretty easy to miss the email that included that link. So so if you forgot to bookmark it or you just need access to it, it is now just on the Patreon at all times. So I yeah. hope that that's helpful. Yeah, I'll be the first to admit Patreon is not like the best service in the world. And <laughs> they have they have a lot of what I would consider to be uh, user interface and user experience troubles. I also uh, want to add a, a, an addendum to that. And this is not to put anyone on blast, but I've noticed. So like when a patron leaves our Patreon, if you, if you decide to stop backing the show, there's a survey. We get that. That's not to Patreon. And I feel like I've, oh, yeah. I've, I've <laughs> you and I have received a lot of glaring feedback for patreon.com that is not being seen by them, but by Stephen Hilger and Brendan Bigley. So if you write your website fucking sucks, eat shit, that's not to them, it's to us. <laughs> I don't mind saying that is actually verbatim an email that we received once. <laughs> I also know who sent it personally. They're a friend of mine. I was like, is, every, is everything okay? Is that true? Yes. <laughs> That's if so you know, funny. you know who you are, and uh, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> that rules. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, so that's available for $5 patrons. And also, the, the thing that we've said about the $5 tier is that you will get all future bonus episodes and hypothetically any video content we create as well. And then there's a, a higher tier, a $10 tier, which is called our eternal gratitude tier, which if you back that at the moment, the only thing that you're getting out of that is that your name is in the show notes of every episode. But we uh, we, we have some plans which we'll announce at a later date for stuff to announce for the $10 tier. But I want to focus on the $5 tier right now because that's where a lot of this stuff is changing. I also want to add um, just that there's any confusion about the grandfather tier. Essentially, if you backed the show for $1 prior to the shift you will be grandfathered into getting the patron episodes 
that would otherwise be for $5 patrons on the $1 tier. Um, but that may not include everything on the $5 tier. So like you'll get the sort of the main episodes, but like videos and, and another thing we're going to announce in a moment will still only be for $5 patrons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think just to double down on that, the idea being that if you're in that grandfather tier, you will get the stuff that we would have been making had we never changed any of those tiers. But that having been said, we have some new stuff that we're working on and some stuff that's already out. Uh, so as of right now, if you hop onto Patreon and you're a $5 backer or higher, you can get access to my entire New Game Plus playthrough of Resident Evil 4 Remake, which I did kind of like in a, in a whirlwind sprint uh, to try and get a higher letter grade than I did the first time I played through it. Uh, and that is a that is a bizarre that is a bizarre experience playing through that game, which I'm actually going to talk about uh, later in the episode, just what that was like playing through the game a second time. Uh, but that is that's a fun video. It's just one long video. It's like eight hours long. You can go watch that. Um, I have chapter markers so you can like break it up and stuff. But that's available for five dollar patrons. And the other thing that I think we want to announce for five dollar patrons, which is very exciting, is a new show. We're making a new show. It's going to be weekly. We have a weekly new show for $5 and up patrons called Any Percent. And essentially the premise is that Brendan and I are given a prompt or question and we have 10 minutes to address it. Exactly 10 minutes. Exactly 10 minutes. We've recorded a few already and uh, mixed results in terms of how we're <laughs> able to achieve that but essentially it, it kind of came up because we were we were brainstorming like what could what could be like a mini series for us um and we tried out some ideas and um this obviously for those who were big no script at all fans this is similar to uh the podcast online which she briefly did with our friend andrea yeah and uh in that you kind of have like a fixed amount of time to explore an idea i thought it would be especially funny for us given that we are somewhat infamous for going over the expected episode yeah, length to right. purposely try to fit a big conversation into 10 minutes so just for context, one of them is we tried to do games of the decade in 10 minutes, <laughs> which, which we only decided to try to do about two minutes into the episode. And uh, that was like thrilling. Yeah. So I'm really excited to share that. I, th I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, again, like share all any and all feedback about it. Like we're definitely it's early on in that show. We we want to see like where it can go and what its potential is. Um, but I'm really happy with like it's felt really good in these kind of early stages of it. So, yeah, I'm excited to share that with people. I think specifically the idea of uh, having a, a mini it's not even a mini series because I, I think it's just going to be ongoing. But every single week we haven't we haven't figured out like exactly what day it'll launch in a given week but if you're back in the patreon you'll just see it in in the rss feed the patreon gives you but all that said the idea of having a weekly series that is almost the exact opposite of what this show is i think is really fun because <laughs> it's it's really it's driven by it's driven by topics and open-ended questions so like if, if you've ever seen us tweet or post on tumblr or whatever like hey just send us questions that's what we're using those for at the moment uh so if you want to send us more like please continue to do that but that having been said, just like this open ended topic, something that wouldn't normally come up on the show and we only have 10 minutes to talk about it feels like literally the exact opposite of of what Into the Aether <laughs> is uh, in a way that is somehow still keeping on brand for us uh, yeah. because it is absolutely chaotic. It's really fun. I mean, like recording it has been a blast. It's been really fun. So the goal now is that for $5 patrons, the expectation is like a monthly episode and any percent every week. So that's like yeah. kind of what we're aiming for in terms of uh, the Patreon schedule. Um, the other big thing is that for this month, 
we're recording our patron episode with Chris Plant, and that episode is going to be essentially like a setup for our Dreamcast premiere in the summer. Um, so for those who maybe need a reminder who didn't know this, every season premiere, which is usually in the summer, uh, starting in season four, we do an episode all about one system and kind of go through its library and share our favorites. So that started with the Game Boy Advance in 2021. We did the DS for this season and for next season, we're doing the Dreamcast, which that announcement, uh, I think, brought out a, a even more uh, powerful side of Chris Plant and he like <laughs> uh, and, and mischievous, powerful and mischievous. And essentially he was like, I have thoughts and and a guide basically like I, yes. i'm gonna be your virgil into the dreamcast hell he has implied in our planning for recording that episode which we haven't done yet to be clear but he, he has implied that he has created a document for us that i am exhilarated to see the contents of i've already done a decent amount of research of like what are the games to check out and also the dreamcast library isn't that big um so i'm excited to like fuse that with whatever on earth Chris Plant is going to shock us with. <laughs> uh, and so, and I think we're, we're also going to talk about just like the system itself. And, you know, I, I, neither of us have a very strong history with it. So I think it will be fun to sort of like set the stage with, with a friend of ours who does have a strong, you know, history with this, with the system. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be April's patron bonus, uh, right. which I'm excited to record that we're recording that like next week, which is exciting. Yeah. So that'll be out before April is out, but I imagine this week will be the, the first release of any percent. So look for that as well uh wherever wherever you get your podcasts uh, yeah for patron backers but that's all the stuff that's happening uh so just just a quick recap right now you can go watch the resident evil 4 remake new game plus run you know what i'll also say by now any percent episode one will be out so we'll just it'll just come out as well and then later in the month this dreamcast primer yeah all really exciting and, and i also just want to add like i think you and i are both blown away by how much support we've gotten recently on the patreon it's still like we said earlier, like it's still a place where we're really open to experimentation and like open for feedback on like what you want to see there. And I, I think you and I too have have become much more comfortable kind of accepting support. Cause I think for a while it was like, yeah, kind of hard to like anytime we plug the Patreon, it was almost like an apology. <laughs> you can hear it in past episodes where we're like, you don't have yeah. to, it's fine. But you know, again, like we want to keep doing the show. It is expensive to do. And like the reality of it is if we want, if we want more time to do this, we do need the help to get there. So like, yeah, again, we're always going to make a show that is accessible to everyone. Like, you know, there's never going to be in like, we're never going to paywall stuff. We want to be available for everyone, but I think we we've finally, finally found the balance here and uh, just huge thanks to everyone a for even listening uh and and b for you know for those who are able to support us like thank you from the bottom of our hearts truly yeah for real we also have discovered that uh march of 2023 was our biggest month ever for the show again uh so the yeah. show just like continues to grow and i think a lot of that as we say at the end of every episode but i guess it, you know why not throw it towards the beginning this time around but it's usually all word of mouth i mean we're not un until recently we haven't paid for ads ever uh we just paid for one ad recently which uh i'll be honest didn't do very well anyway so <laughs> I, th I think the the learning from that is that it's all word of mouth baby so thank you so much uh, to everybody who has been like spreading the show around and like reviewing on Apple Podcasts, which I think is actually making a difference because Apple Podcasts seems to be like yeah we we've it used not to get too metricsy, but it used to be like Spotify and everyone else, and yeah. now Apple Podcasts is like a strong like there's a huge increase there. So if 
you do want to help the show without having to pay, honestly, Apple Podcast reviews seem to be like a really direct way to do that. A little shot in the arm. Little, little boost. Yeah. Little little sea bass for Leon. A treat mm-hmm. after uh, fighting the, <laughs> the claw guys. Yummy oh, a fish. Yeah. A, a lunker bass. <laughs> Good thing I have a charm that makes sea basses uh, heal full health. Oh, did you get that one? No, I have the chicken one, but I know that one exists. Yeah, I just got that one recently. Hell yeah. That's a wrap on the Patreon for now. Uh, we're not going to start every episode like this. We just thought it was like, it was. It seemed like time to sort of like re-communicate uh, what the plan for that is. And I'm sure we'll make a post as well. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you all. I've got big news, Brendan. <laughs> we should take a break before we oh. announce what has happened to Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> but if you want to know what happened to Sonic the Hedgehog recently, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Steven, at, I think it was the end of the Super Mario All-Stars episode. We uh, announced, not even announced, but just kind of like pondered the idea of maybe bringing Sonic the Hedgehog to the show in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, I, I hear that you uh, are prepared to do that finally. We're, we're going to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog on the, on, on the show. I am. It's a shame that this comes immediately after the, the shocking announcement of his death, uh, which was... <laughs> which was announced to the world on March 31st by Sega themselves with the announcement of a game called The Murder of Sonic the Hedgehog. I think the best part of doing this show is that moment at the end of a Game of the Year episode where we all are like sort of like loosely awake after five hours of just gushing about yeah. our, our passion, our, our favorite games of the year. And then there's a moment where one of us is like, so like, what are you looking forward to next year? And it's like, well, there's the eight games we know that are like objectively exciting. And then what's even more exciting, though, is that we have no idea what can happen outside of that. Like the games that just sort of come out of nowhere, uh, you know, that that is where the real excitement is. Mm -hmm. And I think the the most that statement has ever been true is Sega jump scaring the world with an April Fool's Day murder mystery Sonic the Hedgehog visual novel. (laughs) Yeah. I have played and finished the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog, and I'll just say off the top, it's it's really good. I'm really excited to share my experience with this game and also i think just my my thoughts on it because i'm not uh my experience with sonic is pretty fleeting like i played the first two kind of like at friends houses mm-hmm. actually i just remembered recently sonic the hedgehog the first game was the first like full game i had on my cell phone like i had sonic one on like a 2007 flip phone yeah i remember this yeah and it was like so exciting like, yeah I'm like, look at if it felt thrilling to play Sonic with like the weird arrow keys on like a, the world ends with you flip phone. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. want that back, honestly. But um, <laughs> I played that and and the big one for me was in middle school. Uh, actually, the first game I ever bought for myself, my first like I saved up enough money to get myself because i think by by the time gaming came out i think my parents were like we're not we're done with this shit like we're not just gonna <laughs> we're not just gonna keep buying stuff for you yeah you spoiled brat so <laughs> by the time i was 11 I, I had to like actually save up and and the game that i i think was my first purchase was sonic adventure 2 battle for the gamecube oh hell yeah which i loved i played that game to completion several times mm-hmm. i've played it recently and you know it it doesn't hold up quite as well. It's still very charming though. And it still has like elements that kind of bring me back. I think the Chow garden obviously is like the hit from that yeah. game. It's, 
astounding that they haven't brought the Chow Garden back in yeah. all these years. Everyone asks for it every time there's a new Sonic game. I'd even settle for like a microtransaction hell mobile <laughs> game version of the Chow Garden. The like the fact that we don't curling. even have that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Where I spend like five dollars for like an egg hat, you yeah. know? I, so I, I had that experience and I just sort of haven't really followed it. And I, I think the elephant in the room with a project like this is, is I think that Sonic from the outside is kind of easy to poke fun at. I think like even prior to Shrek, it was the first IP to kind of be like Shrekified online in terms of like absolutely memes and like even even my friends who don't follow games at all will just every now and then text me a weird comic of Sonic where he's like pregnant with Shrek and they're like, you like this, right? Like this is what you're up to. <laughs> And I just feel like the I have nothing but empathy for Sonic fans who have just been like taking the hits for like yeah. decades waiting for the off chance a game will drop that kind of recaptures the magic. And and I think like, again, from an outsider's point of view, I know there have been great Sonic games in recent history. Sonic Mania seemed to be well liked. Yeah, Even some great. of like sort of like I remember some of the DS ones seem to have a following like there there have been good Sonic games despite sort of like the overwhelmingly negative like Sonic 06 I think was the point where like the Shrekification began <laughs> uh, and and the series kind of lost its way but I think like again you know having not really followed this series playing a game like the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog to me kind of brings to light why fans have stuck around and I really think it's it's because of the characters and sort of just the yes. easily recognizable tone and charm of of the cast and of the world itself. I think there's a reason why, like, you know, and in some ways, I think that this game kind of captures the heart of the series, weirdly, because it is, you know, to give context of what the game is, it's a visual novel very much in the tone of Ace Attorney, where you're on this train and it's Amy Rose's birthday, very kind of knives out ensemble Maybe more Glass Onion in this case. More Glass Onion. Sonic is presumed dead and you and Tails have to investigate, interview everyone and figure out who did it. And it's just so fun. It's it's genuinely hilarious. It's really heartwarming. Like even kind of going in a little bit skeptical of like, is this going to be like too much for fans or too like in jokey or yeah. like... Like it was, I kind of forgot that it was like a known, like the, the closest comparison I can think of in terms of taking a like widely recognizable and known and beloved franchise and putting like a comedic and specific spin on it is the Paper Mario series and the Mario RPGs. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. And honestly, like I'll get into like what I think about this particular game soon enough, but I really think they're onto something. And I think this could be like a really successful spinoff for Sonic. Like I would absolutely absolutely play like a sonic mysteries game that's like just this not just a free sort of april fool's day prank but like you know and, and the thing is like everyone who worked on the game you know i think they kept it a secret but once the game was announced like everyone who worked on like the art for it or or the writing staff like everyone was so proud of it yeah and that passion really shows and i'm like if they could make this a spin-off series like i think that that actually might like change the way people talk about sonic on like a on a mainstream level you yeah know? Th this is kind of the thing i wanted to talk about because the idea of this being an april fool's day prank I i've seen uh, a, a bunch of people on the internet kind of bristling at right this this idea that like visual novels are very frequently treated kind of as a joke and like ironic yeah weirdly enough this is the most bizarre thing to me is that it 
there are different divisions of Sega who clearly like didn't talk to each other about this. And there's another division of Sega that posted their own April Fool's Day joke, which is a different fake, not downloadable and not playable Sonic the Hedgehog visual novel. That's like a, a speed dating game. And everyone is like, how do you get it so right and so wrong simultaneously? You know, like, <laughs> right. I, think, I think the big thing that people are kind of bumping up against is this idea that visual novels are a joke, right? Is like what what we're finding, I think the more companies, the more uh, game companies post fake visual novels as their April Fool's Day pranks. And everyone's like, wait, I would actually play this is like there's a huge untapped market for visual novels still. Right. Like they're just not getting greenlit. They're not getting made kind of by, you know, on, on a higher level by bigger studios. They're really happening at the at the smaller indie scale more frequently than not. And the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog is kind of just that happening again at Sega. The beautiful thing is that they were actually allowed to make it. But even the idea that this thing is being released like as a joke and not as a real thing, but everyone is playing it. And it's like, actually, this is phenomenal. I just to be clear. I've also played a, a big chunk of this. It's like two hours long. I played like 40 minutes of it. But anyway, I've played about 40 minutes of it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you. I would absolutely play this. And I think you're so right that it is all about the characters. It's one of the most fascinating things about it to me is like, I I have played a bunch of different Sonic games. I know who all of these characters are and I've never seen them written as well or have seen them as interesting as they are in this April Fool's Day prank, quote unquote. And it kind of leads me down this path of like, the other April Fool's Day pranks in the past that have kind of become real. And I kind of hope this follows the same thing. I think one of the most famous ones is Gmail. Like Gmail from Google was launched as a joke and then everyone was like, wait, this is actually incredible. And then they just made it real. <laughs> and yeah. now it is like the default email address for pretty much everyone on the planet. I think the reason this game is working so well is that no one who made it was making it as a joke. There's right. a sense of humor. Like there's definitely like one of the best moments, not to spoil it, but with I don't know if it's Rouge or Rogue. And I don't want to relive mispronouncing Gerudo fiasco of 2022 <laughs> um, or 2023. But uh, Rouge the Bat and blaze the cat i believe who i've now met for the first time i didn't know <laughs> there there are a few characters here that have like shown me how out of the sonic loop i've been I'm like who, who's this chameleon yeah um but anyway <laughs> blaze and rouge are in the casino part of the train and they kind of like uh force you into planning a heist with them and it's like so fun and so funny and there's a point where uh, you have to decide how to defuse the bomb. That is like maybe the most I've laughed like with the game in a very long time. Mm. And like the art directions, like I love the way everyone in in the cast has like a murder mystery outfit, and like it's just so fun and celebratory. Like I think kind of like a Paper Mario, you know, pokes fun at. at like the absurdity of Mario, but like does also add so much charm and layers of depth to what is otherwise kind of like a taken for granted fantasy world. Yeah. The same is happening here. And I mean, again, I don't really know a lot about like, there's apparently like new Sonic comics that are like genuinely great. And it feels like the people and the fans that have stuck around who like genuinely love these characters are now kind of getting work for Sega to like bring it back. And mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. There's actually a great uh, Super Eye Patch video about sort of the fandom of Sonic and I especially like his videos on fandoms because they do highlight like where the absurdity is and like where like the places that that can go but also just like the genuine love and appreciation for that thing mm -hmm. you know and I think like Sonic has gone through like so much debasement in our lifetime that it's it's really nice to see a game like this it's just like yeah these are genuinely great characters and behind the lens of irony of all these memes if something is meme to death it means that it's like a recognizable 
cultural thing Mm -hmm. you know like i think at a certain point there's like an element of love behind all the irony and it's nice to see the love in full focus in this game i think as as a visual novel like i it's kind of ironic or coincidental that like this comes out now as you and i are getting more into visual novels um (laughs) having just played something like paranormal and then misericord Mm -hmm. and now this and i mean this is definitely I, i would say the clearest influence here is ace attorney like the people who wrote this game have completely nailed the rhythm of an ace attorney like scene like the back and forth dialogue with tails feels very much like what maya would say in an investigation thing yeah talking to shadow is basically like edgeworth like it's (laughs) it's not one-to-one but like you can tell like they kind of nailed like the atmosphere of that kind of game the biggest miss for me is that there are moments of this game where like ace attorney or like paranormal site the game will be like okay you've gotten all the clues you've gotten all the information who's the culprit like who do you what do you think happened Mm -hmm. and rather than just letting you make that call the game makes you play sonic (laughs) so like you have to pull out your your uh game gear essentially and then play a little like sonic mini game and it's like it's fun but it's it's sort of like if you're playing ace attorney and there's always that moment in a court case where where phoenix is like all right it's now or never like what is my last piece of evidence that can turn this case around and rather than letting you choose the evidence it made you play like the street fighter beat up a car minigame right it's like this is totally unrelated to what i've been working on yeah yeah the 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 idea just to <laughs> expand that a bit yeah the the reason that you have to do that in the game is because in, in the very beginning when they're first tutorializing like how you're supposed to find evidence and present it in solve cases tails says whenever i'm stumped i ask myself what would sonic, what do? Would sonic do yeah so i <laughs> which think which is the, hilarious yeah it's hilarious and what i think is the idea is that you're asking yourself what would sonic do so you have this kind of like almost sherlockian mind palace where you just play sonic for a little bit because what sonic would do is run around and collect rings but you're literally the idea is that you're collecting enough rings to finish the level and at the end of the level is like the idea or the thought it's like it's presented literally as a light bulb in this little thing so i think you're playing like a little mind palace version of game gear to collect enough rings that you feel like you can trace the evidence from point a to point b and then and then that light bulb that you collect like is the like fermentation of that idea yeah i guess my thing is like, i just wish the gameplay was more aligned with those moments no i, I agree with like, you i don't think yeah. i don't think it's like the most successful way of doing it but i i do like the like diegetic reason that they have you playing sonic the hedgehog yeah it, it is very funny i just wonder if there's like a strange rule at sega where it's like if you make a sonic game sonic has to be playable and that's like how they like worked <laughs> around it in some yeah. way. But all that to say, I, I do think like the game is such a great proof of concept. And I really I think it would be a huge missed opportunity if they didn't let this team do it again. I totally agree. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me, too, of like there's a lot of power in sort of the out of nowhere announcement. Like I, I think back to Hi-Fi Rush and like mm-hmm. that game's success is due to the game itself being great. But I have to wonder what would happen if that game was announced and then came out a year later, especially after after that trailer like didn't really fully sell the game the way the game itself did yeah like i think there's something about just being like hey here's something we're working on it's available now and also this game being free is like 
an incredible thing because you can just try it and like be instantly won over. And it feels like, you know, I, I wonder, I really do wonder like what led to this game's creation. Like again, it being kind of an April Fool's Day prank, but like, mm-hmm. I do wonder if behind that it's Sega's way of like being like, Hey, we don't really know what to do with Sonic anymore. You guys can try something yeah. and release it for free on April Fool's Day. And if it clicks, it clicks. This is the thing. It just, it raises so many questions about the future of like Sonic as, as intellectual property for me because they have tried so many times to say, okay, we're going to get it right this time. And it clearly doesn't like frontiers obviously kind of didn't work out. I I know there are some people who really like it, but for the most part it was, you know, critically panned and commercially didn't do very well either. And the thing that does continue to work is like, okay, let's just make something that feels like the original again, but you got to evolve, you know, there, there has to be some kind of evolution. And I think taking Sonic out of the, I'm just going to run from left to right as fast as possible, which personally over the years I have found to be less compelling of a thing to do, taking Sonic out of that and, and just like shoving that intellectual property and these characters who, as we mentioned at the beginning are very interesting, but I don't think they're interesting in the games that they were announced or like debuted in but they're very clearly telegraphed as like fascinating archetypes and different kinds of characters in this game like i i love each one of these people you know yeah. in, in this game like I, I find everyone so fun to be around in a way I've literally never felt in any of the games that they showed up in first and somehow they all have an air of mystery about them even though we've all known these characters for our whole lives <laughs> right. like the fact that I don't know if a- like Amy Rose's design it's her birthday she's like you know so happy everyone's there but is like you know kind of selfish and like clearly like up to something and like mm-hmm. doesn't want to work with you and tails on finding clues and her robes are blue fur so the whole time i'm like that's a pretty big visual clue that maybe she killed sonic (laughs) and is wearing his skin (laughs) in public (laughs) but i i just uh i i think that everyone who worked on this game did the impossible i think like it's it's just so charming and again i think like the strength of the series and the reason people have stuck around yes some of the games are fun but i really do think it's a love of just like the characters and the world itself and like throwing them into different places and seeing what happens so i i would highly recommend recommend checking this out even if you're not like a big sonic fan i think it will win you over just like it did for me like yeah. i didn't really have any reverence for shadow before playing this and now i would die for him so i really do love all their outfits and i forget i forget why shadow is dressed the way he is but it looks like he's dressed exactly like a starbucks barista which i am yeah. obsessed with <laughs> give me a grumpy shadow as a like barista game. as like a that retail worker yeah. yeah i love that yeah they all they're all given roles in the murder mystery so the whole idea is that like they are planning a murder mystery on this like joyride for the 1% train and you play as like the waiter. A lot of characters will call you like the microwave guy. Yeah. And there's a line where you're like, I don't want that to be my legacy. Like, please. <laughs> no. <laughs> also kind of seeing like in this world, these characters are celebrities. So like what is sort of like the everyman of the Sonic world? This was the big question I was asking myself yeah. right at the top of the game was, are, are they going to pull a Mario golf situation? And is yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog going to be like a famous person and the and one of the first things that happens is when the whole like party shows up on the train the conductor like thanks sonic for saving his family from dr robotnik 
And Sonic's like, yeah, 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 I'm glad your family is safe. Let's get to the murder mystery. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many funny moments with that. Even if you're someone who like doesn't really get it or like hasn't really followed the series at all, it's so fun. Yeah. It's so charming and so fun. So yeah, I would recommend it. And I really, really, really hope we see this become a, a full series. I think there's a lot of potential here. And I think that it, even if it's just this, like I, I would still recommend playing this game. I just think that there's like clearly more to do with this style. I think if they like tweak some things, maybe get like a larger story there's a lot of potential here so yeah i'm not i'm not advocating that anybody uh just like goes up up and quits their job but if uh if this team isn't allowed to make more of them i think they have a stellar future in just leaving sega and making their own stuff right i mean like the writing and, and art skills are are on display you can basically do this with any cast yeah. but i think it's like it's in sega's best interest to have this be sonic <laughs> i totally agree yeah uh, anyway, that is free and available on Steam. Uh, you and I both played it on the Steam Deck. Uh, and yeah, it works well there. I had one weird glitch where everything that was like interactable in an investigation appeared twice. And I don't know why, but it didn't really affect anything. It made it easier to find what was interactable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's awesome. Uh, cool. Highly recommend the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, let's take a break and then come back and talk about some indie games. How's that sound? Sounds wonderful. Goodbye. See you soon. We're back. Hello. Last week, I think it was, uh, I alluded to the fact that there are two really interesting indie games that were launching uh, in, in the past week, and uh, we've played both of them, or we've, play, we've both played one of them, and I've played both of them, I guess. <laughs> uh, but the first one I want to talk about is Terra Nil, which is a game I've kind of had my eye on for a little while. Yeah. Um, I, I saw it get announced at an event at some point, somewhere, I don't remember exactly where, but essentially it is what is referred to as a reverse city builder so the idea is you're given this kind of big empty wasteland and what you need to do is place down objects in buildings that will kind of like reclaim the wasteland and turn it into a, a biodiverse ecosystem and the way you finish each area is by picking up all of those buildings that you put down and at some point you've you know created like a sustainable ecosystem that can maintain itself and, and continue into the future it is really fascinating because i think it's more of a puzzle game than i was expecting i kind of yeah. expected it to be more of just like like a chill the fuck out simulator if i'm being honest there are a couple modes there is a mode where you can just like kind of make whatever you want and see what happens then yeah. there's like the in, the sort of intended way that is a little bit more strategic and then there's like a harder version which i haven't played yeah it, it reminds me a lot of dorf romantic in that way where both yeah. games have the illusion of kind of like they, they are really relaxing games but they're both like you made a wrong move eight minutes ago yeah and now you have to just deal with it yeah or start over. or start over yeah, yeah. which i I've had to do many times in the game every time I do it is like sometimes the best move is to start over with new knowledge. It's like, OK, sure, that's fine. But I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by with this game is just the fact that it's been released on Netflix. So it's like a game you can get on iOS and Android and also your iPad uh, for free if you have a Netflix account already. Uh, yeah, and, it just, and they, they handle that more easily than they have in the past, where if you just download the app, it prompts you to log in to Netflix. I feel like it was it was a little bit more indirect in their past attempts at this. It's just another game added to the pantheon of like great Netflix games that they've yeah. been <laughs> producing and throwing out in the world, which I'm really fascinated by. Honestly, just this like I find that whenever we talk about Netflix games or whenever I like see them on the Internet, there's always, you know, 500 replies in the comments that are like, what do you mean Netflix games? Uh, which I, I, I what I think is interesting about Netflix is that they've been taking a lot of like indie hits, like things that are kind of in the pantheon of indie games and just 
publishing mobile versions of them and like Into the Breach, Kentucky Route Zero is another great example there. Immortality, one of my favorite games of last year is available on Netflix uh, on mobile, like stuff like that is just on Netflix, which is amazing. And they're also making new stuff or publishing new stuff like Terra Nil, for example. Um, And then they have some like obviously Netflix TV show tie in stuff. There's like four Stranger Things games on there. But for the most part, weirdly, it is like one of the more exciting indie publishers right now, which I'm really surprised by. Yeah, I I guess I'm a little bit I definitely think you're right in terms of what's currently available, but I'm I'm more pessimistic of just the long term approach at it. Like I oh I, yeah, because there I've just seen no mar- like I've heard more marketing from you than Netflix, which I think is an issue. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a reason that ev- all of the comments are like, "What do you mean Netflix has games?" Yeah, and I just think that there if, if this matches their approach to shows i just worry they're gonna like throw a bunch of money at this until they decide if it works or not and then pull the plug on it yeah you know i mean there there was already that whole thing where they were like wasn't there an event where they were going to open like their own game studio and then just like fired everyone they had just hired yeah they they've done that multiple times they did that with a game studio they also did that with they had like kind of a public facing editorial site that they started that i think was called geeked I'm not mistaken. And they'd like poached a bunch of great entertainment writers from a bunch of other publications to start this new thing and then fired them before it even started, which was wild. So I do think their current approach at having like, okay, there, there are already sort of the known hits that are now like free. If you have an account, it's a, it's a good idea. I just think it's like, it's like a secret. (laughs) Yeah. I will say one of the things that's interesting to me, and, and this is this is like a real inside baseball thing, I think, but there has been a lot of pressure on Google and Apple, specifically from the EU, but also increasingly in the US to allow third party app stores onto iPhones and Android devices. In both cases, both Google and Apple have kind of an incentive to not allow that stuff because they're getting, you know, 30% or 15% of all of the profit that is being made off of apps in the app store. Right. So like Genshin Impact, I think made $6 billion last year or something. And Apple gets about 1.6% of, or sorry, 1.6 billion of that is, is profit for Apple just because all of those microtransactions and stuff happen through the app store. And increasingly governments around the world have been saying things like, Hey, this is monopolistic. If you're not allowing other people to have their own app stores on here and you're, t- you're forcing everyone to allow a 30% profit cut on everything that's happening here, then you are essentially operating a monopoly. It's similar to what like Roblox is doing, although that's even more horrific because it's like right. mostly kids. But they yeah. take like I think Roblox takes like a seventy percent cut of everything made on their store. Yeah, which is crazy. And then Apple is taking thirty percent of that. So <laughs> right. Which, you know, this is the reason that like Fortnite isn't available on iPhones anymore is because they were like, we refuse to pay Apple's 30% tax on everything that's happening here just because we want to be on an iPhone. So what has started to happen is there's been rumblings that in the next version of iOS and also next year on Android as well, Apple and Google are going to have to start allowing third party app stores on their platforms. And that will have huge implications for things like Netflix games, but also Xbox Game Pass, because the big thing that's been holding back an Xbox cloud gaming app or a Game Pass app on the iPhone is that Apple has said you are not allowed to have access to all these games through one app. You need to submit each app separately if you want them to be playable on the app store. So if you wanted to play like Yakuza 0, for example, through Game Pass, you would need to submit that as its own app. And then users would have to download that for themselves, then sign in with Game Pass, then play it instead of what Game 
Pass is and was always built to be, which is like, here's your hub for all of the things that are available on Game Pass, and it allows Xbox to easily add or remove things over time. Netflix's approach has been kind of the opposite, where they're like, all right, we'll play ball. And they have said like, okay, approve every single fucking game that we publish then. We're going to send every game to you for approval, and you're going to have to just deal with that because that's what you say you want. Um, It's almost like malicious compliance in that way. Yeah. Uh, But if all of these changes happen within the next year, what that means that the Netflix app, the main Netflix app will probably be the way to play those games in the future. If I were to guess, I have to imagine there's going to be some kind of thing where you could download the Netflix app and then just play all of that stuff through there because technically the Netflix app would become its own app store. And then the same thing would happen with Xbox and Game Pass would finally be allowed on the iPhone. That also opens doors for things like the Epic Games launcher showing up on the iPhone and Fortnite being available again, but also all the other stuff that Epic is working on, which is really fascinating. But I do think what's going to happen just to tie all this together is that what we're going to see is Netflix taking all of these games that they've been working on for the past like year to two years, bundling all together and then doing probably a marketing blitz when they're finally allowed to do this on the iPhone and have it all under one package and be like, now, guess what? It's just like when Netflix streaming first launched and there was like a, a shocking amount of options for you to watch on streaming. It'll be similar for games as well, which I think is maybe the right approach for them. But also it could just be that they're not putting any marketing weight behind it and uh, it'll just like falter and die. <laughs> so those are really the two paths, I think. That, that makes sense. I mean, again, I think uh, waiting for the the Apple that all is sort of conformed what they want it to be. That that is likely, but yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting to see these like giant companies trying to enter the game space, yeah. and like ultimately, I think a lot of them, and this is maybe optimistic on my part, but I think a lot of them fall apart because they're so like Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft are also businesses, but I do think there is a seed of like artistic, genuine interest, you know, with yeah. like nintendo especially i mean like i think that company was started by game designers Mm -hmm. you know and not just we want to make a lot of money from this yeah (laughs) that kind of came after the good idea i think when you're like amazon and you're like i just want to do this like everyone else is (laughs) like that only gets you so far at a certain point that is what is communicated to the public even if they're not like following the news totally it's hard to get excited about like amazon making their own version of like black desert online it's like okay Right. What does this mean for me? Even in that regard, you could follow that logic down through like games journalism as well. Right. And ironically, Amazon owns the Washington Post, but the Washington Post just shut down Launcher, which was like their games focused press outlet that was available at the Washington Post. So it's like, here's a newspaper of record saying that games journalism is important enough that we're going to have our own division that's just covering game stuff because game stuff is pop culture, you know, like you can't you can't say that you're covering movies and be like, yes, this is all the entertainment has to offer, especially considering so much of what is prevalent about covering games journalism and and games as like an idea and a cultural force is frequently because it's so bred on the internet is frequently a precursor to what's going to happen in like the larger wave of discourse. I mean, not, not to shout out like a negative shout out to be clear, not to like negatively shout out uh, everything that happened with Gamergate, but like what happened with Gamergate became us politics a couple of years later, you know? Yeah, right. It was, it was a rising movement of, of hatred and bigotry, right. you know? Right. Which so, just kind of like ballooned into being everything like that's yeah. That's just how we experience discourse on the internet now is all bred from what happened with Gamergate for Amazon by way of the Washington Post to be like, yeah, launcher is no longer interesting to us. The game stuff isn't isn't bringing in enough. It's like it's actually just important coverage. It's not even about like, is this profitable for you? It's more about this. This is in some ways 
a way for you to have like precognition about the stuff you're going to have to cover in three or four years. And I, I another interesting example of this is maybe Spotify and podcasts. They said that they were interested. And the reason that they were interested is because they wanted people to keep the app open for longer. It wasn't because they were interested in podcasts. It was because they wanted to prove the shareholders that people would keep the Spotify app open longer, because that means that they can serve not only audio ads, but visual ads, uh, which is like obviously the worst reason to get into a new form of entertainment. And, and I, worry i think which is what you're getting at is that this is where netflix is coming from as well right is that like the the netflix of it all is literally just people are unsubscribing to us because our our film and video offerings in general aren't enticing enough to keep people subscribed so now we need to keep people subscribed with quote-unquote stickier entertainment which in this case is games and if that doesn't pan out for them in a time that like weird boardroom executives are happy with which is almost always then will they just shut this whole project down before it even like gets its feet under it yeah and and i think this all kind of stems from people trying to enter the space without without an understanding of it you Mm -hmm. know i think that it's like at a certain point you have to understand like what games are and why people are interested in them yeah because i think and that's that's a very capitalist thing right where it's the, the people that are making these decisions that are so high up don't even really care or want to know what they're selling right they're just like it is a thing that will make money yes exactly and again i'm not acting like that doesn't exist in nintendo and companies like square enix like it it very much does yeah like it's kind of everywhere and it's 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 you know the rot of our society at a certain point but (laughs) i do think the things that succeed and the and the games that we talk about like there's something there was someone in that room that was excited about an idea they had right i really do think there's at least that piece of it with something like nintendo or the very like the the playstation i think worked because sony in the era of ps1 was willing to invest a lot of money in third-party studios just throwing out really cool and experimental ideas yeah and to to netflix's credit also whoever is running that division has impeccable taste oh yeah there's a version of like the 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 worst case scenario of like netflix games could just be like here's like match three you know shit you know and it's like they actually like it's like a a, a stroll down the moma you know it's like it's all this like specific quadrant of indie games that are available on netflix yeah it's like all of our favorite games ever are available via (laughs) Netflix right now, which is so interesting. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> huge diversion. Of rot of society in a barren wasteland you have to give life to again. Terra Nil. It's really fun. So I've been wow. playing is it. Is Terra Nil just representative of Netflix's approach to games entirely? <laughs> is the game one big allegory for how Netflix is publishing games? <laughs> if it ain't working, just start over. Um, <laughs> with new way with all the previous knowledge. Oh my god. Pretty much. What I find really interesting about this game is that it has a very SimCity 2000 aesthetic, which I adore. I'm obsessed. Growing up, our computer that was like shared around the house wasn't super high performing. So like that kind of uh, prevented me from getting into a lot of PC games at the time. Mm -hmm. But I still really loved all the Sim games. Like I had the pack that was SimCity, SimTower, SimSafari, SimIsle, Streets of SimCity, which was terrible. Uh, and the sims but i always really especially like sim tower and sim city 2000 and i think the thrill of of sim city was always like making this self-sustaining engine and then being like well i did it now i need to summon godzilla or aliens to destroy it all and in this game kind of taking an optimistic approach at destruction is genius it's like they kind of knew the loop of sim city was creation and destruction and they actually built the game around that idea with like a metaphor for, you know, environmental resurrection. Yeah. 
I feel like we've been talking a lot recently about games that you can't believe didn't exist already. You know, I, yeah. I think Storyteller was a great example of that. And now and now we have this with Terra Nil where it's like, how did nobody make this already? <laughs> it's such a it's such a great idea that like I feel like has been floating around the zeitgeist for a long time. I feel like that there are games that that are purposely like really Zen city builders. The closest parallel I can think of Terra Nil was um, that game company's first game, Flower, mm. uh, which is a, it's a different design, but it does have this like feeling of of nature reclaiming like a a destroyed environment. Yeah. So I, I think there's been like, and this is I think the case with all good ideas, like there's the sentiment and the desire kind of floating around the air, and then someone just does it. You're like, oh my god, yeah, duh. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, yeah Terra Nil is awesome. I really like playing it on on my iPhone as well. Thank you, Netflix.com. Yeah. I've been playing it on my iPad, which uh, feels like the the place for it. Uh, I, I like it on my phone. Definitely. I find that you just need to zoom in and out a lot. That's true. If you're playing on yeah. your iPhone and in, in a way that I don't need to with my iPad, which I appreciate. Especially once you start making animal habitats, because like, yeah, so the stages like you start off and it's just like what looks like a Starcraft map where it's like this is just like a barren landscape that zerglings will spawn from Mm -hmm. um then the first thing you could do is like okay i can you have a resource where you can drop these machines that basically make a aoe of the soil fertile again and then there's a thing you can drop that like fills the area with water and all the fertile soil becomes grass so all kind of immediately they're showing you like okay you have to think about your resources and when the best time to drop that water canister is Mm -hmm. you also have to put wind generators to like power up these machines and they can only be placed on areas with solid rock so eventually every map is different too i think it's procedurally generated but once you've occupied all the rocks you also can't put the wind generators like too close to each other so once you've done that you're going to realize like oh wait there's nowhere else i can put these and then you're given machines that can a create rivers and then another device that like makes all the surrounding area of a body of water into rocks so then you suddenly have to time like okay i need to like think about getting to this stage so i continue making power sources to generate everything else yeah um and that's kind of the whole game like it's that sort of pattern but amplified to eventually you know you're taking this environment that looks like the sound of music and you're like what if i made this area into like a wet you know sort of more like jungle terrain Mm -hmm. or what if i made this into a forest and then once you kind of have all that done you can then start summoning animals into certain habitats and that's where it gets kind of tricky because the animals each require very specific things that you wouldn't have thought ahead to do right so like in my map i can only make I couldn't make all of them. I can only make deer, which are pretty easy. They just require like an open grass area. Yeah. Um, frogs are a little bit trickier. They require like areas with reeds and water. And then wolves, which require like a forest area and to be near deer. Um, so my whole world, this like beautiful paradise is just wolves eating deer. <laughs> I need like ducks or something to balance this out. Yeah. Yeah, like like bears are really difficult in particular because the bears can only be placed on like mountainous environments that are forested and have 
a beehive there, which like a beehive is just an item you can place on any tree. But just getting the forest to grow up onto a highly elevated area is really difficult and is not, again, as you mentioned, something that you wouldn't anticipate before you made it to that phase for the first time. So the, the game is broken into three phases. It's uh, the beginning. is just like getting enough grass to be able to start like messing around with it and start turning it into different biomes. Phase two is turning into different biomes and it'll tell you like, we need, you know, this much marsh and wetland. We need this much forest. We need this much uh, just kind of like normal grassy plains. And we need this much like, you know, uh, field of flowers, etc. Once you hit all of those requirements, then you move on to seeding this with animal life. But on top of that, start removing all of the buildings that you've placed down uh, in what's called the recycling phase, which is like taking all of these buildings and recycling them back down into this kind of like big airship that will then take off and leave. And that's the last sign of your presence in this space, essentially, is like this one big airship that you're just trying to build up by recycling the materials that you've used prior to that. Um, and that's honestly, if, if I were to to knock the game for one thing, that that I think is the most frustrating part of the game is is the recycling phase. I just find it so difficult every single time, uh, even yeah. when I'm like anticipating it, because the requirements for how you're allowed to recycle things change from biome to biome as well. So like in the first one, you essentially just have to build the airship on a river and then you have this little kind of like recycling boat that can travel up and downstream in rivers uh, to recycle the buildings that are placed there. But if you have buildings that are too far away from a river where that thing can't hit it, you're kind of like shit out of luck unless you start building more rivers into the world, which of course is then using more of your resources that you then need to recycle again, which is a loop that you can kind of get into and eventually figure out. But in the process by like needing to generate more rivers to pick up that stuff, you're undoing a lot of the work that you've done in a lot of cases to, for example, build habitable environments for some of these animals. The first biome I think is like easy enough to do it in. The second one involves you needing to build literally like a monorail structure around your environment to be able to recycle stuff. And I just, I, for the life of me, can't figure it out. I have played that map like five or six times. And every time I get to the recycling phase, I just like can't do it, which uh, really, really bums me out as someone who does want to play this like mostly as like a chill experience experience that there is always this last phase of the game that I just can't get past. But for the most part, I think it's I think it's exceptional. And it, it is uh, it is definitely the most interesting take on a city builder I've ever seen. Yeah, it's it's really great. Like I'm having a great time, but I do think you're right to criticize the demand of it, because really the only thing you can do is start over. And that's not yeah. a great player experience. You can rewind once. I do think this game would benefit from a divine pulse. Right? If I can go back like, you know, yeah. as many steps as I need to, rather than having to start a brand new map. Right. So that's almost antithetical to what the game is trying to say, too. Like, I wouldn't just leave this biome unfinished. All fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a Midgar with deer. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, otherwise it's, it's a, it's a really, really fun experience and it's really well executed as much as it's an easy idea or it's a surprising thing that we haven't seen this kind of game yet. I imagine we haven't because it's hard to execute. Yeah. You know, once you actually think about like, okay, what is the game of it? Cause like, while it could be fun as like a chill out game, if it's so loose in the requirements, it will kind of lose meaning mm -hmm. and it'll just sort of feel like a screensaver, which could be fun in its own way. But I, I do think they had the right instinct to make it more puzzly and more of a strategy game. Um, I just think that the 
the fail state is ambiguous in which like how does the player respond to realizing they've been doing the wrong thing for an hour because then all you can really do is start over which is not the worst thing but it does kind of push you away from the game in a way that maybe they didn't intend yeah um so other otherwise fantastic yeah it's good uh it's available on <laughs> steam and also ios and android as mentioned via netflix which is pretty cool you know what i i was going to talk about dredge also but i feel like we have so much other stuff to talk about maybe i'll bring dredge back when i'm further in yeah i would also like to play it because it's been on my radar so why don't we why don't we save our lovecraftian fishing game for next week yeah the the one thing i'll say tying it to terra nil a little bit is that it is very similarly relaxing until it's not which i yeah. <laughs> in dredge works very well uh in its favor that's like part of the point of that game i find the best horror games i don't don't know like how horror centric it is but i find the best horror games always have like a relaxing phase to them yeah like resident evil famously has the typewriter rooms which i think in some ways give you a break but they do also complement the horror because like the whole time you're like i just need to make it to one of these rooms and then i'll be okay right but then there's the fear of leaving and be like am i prepared enough like am i okay should i just quit the game and the story ended with jill in this room figuring out her life and silent hill too as well like (laughs) there are less relaxing phases of that game but the reliance on the map and sort of the plan of, okay, like where am I going to go next? And like giving the player just enough control and agency so that when things do go wrong, Mm -hmm. it feels scary. I think they all have an element of that. So I'm excited to see how dredge does that. You will, you will like dredge. The the one other thing I'll say, because I've been playing a lot of resident evil four is that I really appreciate that it has the exact same inventory management system as resident evil (laughs) four. Nice. Like you have to manage your storage. Tetris. Yeah. By, uh, when you're catching fish, like rotating them into, into spots that, are open in your storage good shit but yeah we'll talk about dredge maybe next week um i do want to get a little bit further in because I, I feel like i haven't seen i haven't seen the turn of the game yet but i can feel it coming pretty soon based on where i'm at uh so we'll bring that back but anyway let's take a break and come back and uh we're gonna talk about a game that you've been playing that i'm dying to hear you talk about that surprise also has the re4 inventory management screen. no way really yeah so that's the connective thread of this entire episode wow interesting the shrekification of storage <laughs> <laughs> i just saw like a <laughs> the exterior of the container store and just like a, a subtle shrek head like next to the, <laughs> the logo anyway let's take a break bye-bye <laughs> see you soon brendan steven i feel like a lot of this show especially with the bonuses we both came to this show with a pretty good level of experience with games. Obviously, we're significantly more experienced now, but like we came with a strong interest and a strong history with games, but we we both had our big blind spots. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our bonuses, for whatever reason, have been you kind of like playing these big games you missed for the first time. Yeah. So like Ocarina of Time, Chrono Trigger, uh, we, we often stumble into or seek out uh, episodes about a game that like, that you haven't played that I have a strong history with. And I promise that's not because I'm vain or egocentric. (laughs) It just sort of ends up happening. But like you, I also have giant blind spots in my, in my gaming history, as many of us do. Um, I mentioned earlier this episode is kind of subtle foreshadowing that I didn't have the best computer growing up. The games that I play, like my foundation with, with PC games was the Sim stuff, Mm-hmm. Civilization, I played a lot of, which I loved. Civ 3 in particular. Can I do a quick aside? Please do. Why isn't The Sims on the Switch? Doesn't that feel <laughs> like that would be maybe the best-selling game on the Switch outside of Nintendo stuff? I mean, yeah. 
Absolutely. Sorry, we don't have to dwell on that. That just was what what is going on there? I've searched for The Sims on the eShop more than once and been surprised that it's not there. Is there any other EA stuff on Switch? Because I wonder if that's the if there's like an EA Nintendo thing that we're not aware of. <laughs> they're, they're feuding. I'm, I'm sure there is. Is steep on the Switch? No, that's that's <laughs> Ubisoft, isn't it? I don't think it is. They actually EA has a whole page that just says EA games on Nintendo Switch. Oh. And there are a lot of them, like Apex Legends. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine the Switch could handle Sims 4. I mean, it's a pretty old game of this. When did Sims right. 4 even come out? It's just always been there. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel, too. Anyway, my experience. Yeah, sorry. With, <laughs> no, it's, it, that, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that does also feel like a, a missed opportunity. It's a no-brainer, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of let Animal Crossing fully thrive because I feel like there's like a, a shared audience there. Yeah. Um, in terms of style of games. Uh, Sims would be like the closest Animal Crossing comparison i can think of other than harvest moon anyway grew up playing the sim games civilization uh warcraft 3 and starcraft although since i had dial up playing that online was largely just like a a meditative process of wondering what it would be like if i had the internet working um (laughs) getting through a match without just getting kicked was like a thrill Mm. so i've always gravitated towards consoles i think especially growing up games have always been very social there's a lot of big pc games that i just don't have a formative history with like other people yeah but i feel like i got a taste once i was in my teenage years and i played oblivion for the first time i think i got a sense of what i was missing yeah and ever since then i think a big blind spot for me on this show and the games that i'm i'm messaged about a lot and not in an annoying way, but it's in a way of, of passion and interest are games like Disco Elysium, Fallout New Vegas, very like PC centric RPGs or CRPGs, for lack of a better word, that that we haven't really talked a lot about, which I think stands out given our interest in RPGs and in like narrative focused games. Yeah, I have a history with New Vegas. I love New Vegas. I'd love to talk about it at some point. I, I don't have quite the same level of like reverence for it as some people, but I, I do think it's an incredible incredible game and i think what fallout is all about kind of versus the elder scrolls is like making your place in the world feel noticed and feel commented on Mm. uh which segues into the game i have played for the first time and and, and bringing to the show i'm kind of nervous about because it's a big one i played deus ex for the first time (laughs) which i feel like for a portion of our audience i can hear the party poppers going off because uh i did a poll for the i I don't normally do polls for like what game should i play for the show but i did a poll saying like hey what game should i play for next week deus ex was an option as well as baldur's gate 2 speaking of pc rpgs deus ex creamed baldur's gate 2 i'm sorry (laughs) to the bg2 heads but deus ex had a decisive victory and i actually recently so i i finally got around to the h bomber guy roblox oof video which is unrelated but i highly recommend it's required watching it's incredible yeah it's really good i watched another one of his videos that was actually all about deus ex human revolution Mm. um and if you need a good pitch for the original deus ex watch that video too because (laughs) he he's fair to human revolution but a lot of that video is sort of him detailing like what was missed because Human Revolution came out in an era where immersive sims were not as popular as they are now or as popular as they were in the early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah. So a lot of Human Revolution's design is sort of like streamlining streamlining it to be appealing to mainstream audiences at that specific time mm. and therefore losing what made the original fantastic. Kind of embarrassed by its roots situation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Deus Ex, for those who don't know, is essentially like an X-Files-esque 
very Matrix-esque cyberpunk game uh, that takes place in a, heavy quotes, fictional world where corporations <laughs> run everything and every... And are like kind of interested in indie games and maybe wanting to <laughs> publish them on mobile platforms. <laughs> Yeah, uh, every every conspiracy theory has come true, and uh, I'm not alone in pointing this out. This game is kind of eerie in the stuff it's predicted actually coming true. Mm. I mean, obviously there's some there's some silly stuff like no offense to the UFO heads, but there's like you know aliens and and Illuminati stuff. Uh-huh. But the big thing is that the game opens with like this Illuminati guy kind of narrating his big scheme, and it's largely about a pandemic, and they're sort of like essentially have have the keys to the cure and are deciding like who gets it and who doesn't uh very cool so yeah it's 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 a little bit like shocking but essentially you play the role uh you can kind of customize your own character there's not a lot of flexibility but you can choose what he looks like and what his stats are you play as jc denton and what's interesting is that you immediately meet your brother and depending on how you built your character he will look like the player character oh that's the good shit that's a great way of the game foreshadowing how much it is going to respond to your choices mm. so this game is is in some ways sort of like a early example of the immersive sim genre and and those are games that are essentially built around player interaction so a great modern example would be the dishonored games and prey and actually death loop as well which are all games that kind of have a stealth focus but they are presenting you with obstacles that the player has full creativity on how they tackle them Mm. so you can tell the designers are thinking about okay like we have like these intended ways kind of set up but we're going to give you all the tools and let you kind of do whatever you want and in a weird way this kind of reminds me too of what we love about the elder scrolls games but in, in almost an accidental way i feel like elder scrolls four and five Oblivion and Skyrim are like unimmersive sims where like there are all (laughs) these independent systems at work that will respond organically to the player's interaction. In the case of Deus Ex and a game like New Vegas or Deathloop, there's like a narrative response to what's happening in Elder Scrolls you know it's it's not ever talked about it will just happen yeah and give birth to a new subgenre of comedy we see today but deus ex is just like immediately impressive like on, on one hand it does have kind of a morrowindian mechanical structure where like the things you haven't invested points in you're gonna suck at and like shooting is a skill so if you just like jump into a horde of bad guys with like a pistol out and you're not trained in the pistol you're you're gonna miss constantly and just get wrecked (laughs) and the funniest thing about this game and i i have to imagine this is on purpose but the death cry of the protagonist is like yeah it's like comedic <laughs> level of of and it, it just it make it, it it so diffuses the tension and also makes me feel like okay that went so poorly let me try again and i think that it's interesting to see the structure of this game because the goals are really simple like when you start the game they kind of give you like golden eye objectives like okay here's your goal you have to like go find this thing or or talk to this person and then there are sub objectives like we actually know that there's like a hostage in this building you can say them if you want but like you don't need to i would recommend just doing everything because like it just makes it a more rewarding experience but what's great is that the game doesn't give you like a fail state if you mess up those objectives 
So like there's a moment where you have to rescue these hostages from terrorists in the subway that have like rigged the whole area with explosives. Mm. And you're given the mission objective. Like we just have to like take them out. And like, regardless of what happens to the hostages, we have to prove to this group that using human shields won't work. So the game doesn't punish you if you just go in and blow everything up. But there is like a kind of moral commentary on that. There's a, yeah. a hacker who like talks to you the whole time. And if you do that, he's like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Like, you can't just show up and do things like this, whatever. Like, do do the next thing. But like, I'm I'm disgusted. Mm. And it's really rewarding to have a game that is. I think this game really benefits from having very simple, very clear objectives with like endless possibilities and commentary to back that up. It's really wild to see this game, you know, doing all of that 20 years ago. Like, these are things that we kind of like use as selling points in the triple a space now that were done objectively better in some ways in 2000 i i'm blown away by this game i do think it takes a little bit of getting used to again like the fact that shooting is not a guarantee but that also adds to the immersion it's like this is something this guy has to learn how to do yeah and i'm focusing largely on stealth and hacking and like what's beautiful is that whenever you hack into something it gives you like a early internet login that you can actually just type into. So like <laughs> there are points where you can just find like I found like a, a a note left by the enemy that was like, okay, our password is smash the estate in all lowercase. It's like, of course, that's the password to this like rebel group, smash the <laughs> estate. Um, but when you hack something, what's brilliant is that you're looking at the login screen, but time is still passing around you. So even though you're just seeing what you're hacking, you can emerge from that experience with like enemies surrounding you. So there's a lot of suspense mm. and like being like, okay, when is the right time to hack? And like, am I in the clear to do so? I think the game is also good at like, it has, I think what we love about Oblivion where it's like objectively very over the top and funny. And there's so many wild things that can happen that are like just comedic gold, but yeah. it's also like a very heavy game that's exploring a lot of ideas that kind of hit close to home now. And it's cool to see a game this early on in game history, like kind of be bold enough to like actually be about something to mm -hmm. be about like these big cultural ideas and, and to have the foresight in sort of a metal gear solid way at like what issues could plague society. I, I'm all in. I think it's wonderful. You're playing this on the Steam Deck? Yeah. And how does it control? Good. It's a little, sometimes it's a little tricky to like, so you use the trackpad to like move the mouse and you have sort of like a number button inventory. Mm, um, okay. I would recommend launch it with Proton Experimental and look up some like settings. And there's actually a control scheme that like someone made on Steam that I've been using because a lot of the shortcuts like f1 for the menu and stuff yeah they made the left trackpad like a like a rotary like shortcut menu oh, yeah like the 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 uh quick links kind of thing yeah, yeah. once you kind of get a hold of that it's actually pretty it's pretty good um so i think it works just fine on steam deck but it takes a little bit of setup yeah and and i would just experiment i would also recommend there is a in-game tutorial where all the members of unatco which is like basically like the UN's police force mm. that you are part of uh, in the beginning, at least they walk you through like how stealth works, how combat works and different things. But I think the game's strength is really just the way it organically responds to player decisions and like just the setting. I, I think it is like in a post cyberpunk 2077 world. It's, it's interesting to see 
the approach at cyberpunk in 2000 you know yeah um and i mean this might even i think this this game came out the same year as the matrix so it is very much that oh, wow. era but what's it, the game does have enough of a sense of humor about itself that i find refreshing like there's a character who makes fun of the protagonist never taking off his sunglasses which i think is like all i needed to know that they know this is kind of silly yeah and yeah i i think you i think you might love it because i think it has like the chaos of oblivion with like the sentiment and politics of fallout um so in some ways the perfect game yeah that sounds <laughs> fascinating I'm, I'm curious if you're going to continue on with the franchise do you think you'll keep going because i don't know about human revolution i mean if if h bomber guy has that whole video about like what it lost from the original i do remember though mankind divided which i think is the most recent one got like yeah. glowing reviews by comparison it seems right? like mankind divided was closer to the original's design mm. um because again I, I think mankind divided was like 2016 so that was in an era where i think people the idea of like a big company making this kind of game was more appealing i think i think uh deus ex kind of getting the plug pulled was sort of part of a larger idos montreal like shutdown from square mm. which is kind of a bummer but um i think i'll eventually check out the other ones i, I think i'm just more drawn to seeing through the original because it seems like this is kind of one of a kind yeah like it's it's such a still such an influential game and it's kind of interesting now to have more context for death loop because so much of Deus Ex's structure, at least for me, being not very good at the game, is like being presented with a scenario, trying out something, it going horribly wrong, and JC going like, yeah, and then having to start over. Yeah. And Deathloop was like, what if we just actually made that the structure of the game? Mm -hmm. What if it was all about trial and error, but like that was internalized into the game story? And you know, I have, I have mixed thoughts on Deathloop as a game, but I do kind of appreciate that they saw like, how the game it's almost like divine pulse being added to fire emblem because i think the designers knew that people were restarting when things went poorly yeah uh, that was always my idea. issue with dishonored uh dishonored and dishonored 2 specific like i want to love those games so badly but every time i go to play them i just find myself getting into the the rhythm of just like save scumming that i'm totally uninterested in i feel like that the most interesting thing about death loop as, as you're alluding to is just like the understanding that save scumming is kind of like a breaking of the intended play style and just building a way to kind of subvert that player idea entirely and saying like this actually doesn't matter every time you die is actually good for you in a lot of cases with death loop is a much more interesting way of making those games um but i think weirdly enough going back and playing something from like 1999 or the early 2000s specifically that is like you know looks the way that game does i will be much more okay with playing something that is going to kick me back to a save file every time i die yeah and, and i think too like the the fact that like other than dying there are very few like game over requirements like, again like you decide yourself if you want to commit to something going poorly in the case mm -hmm. of the hostages it was an accident on my end so yeah. i'm like i don't want to commit to that choice but you might be playing or role-playing a jc that doesn't care mm. and it's interesting to hear you know you actually end up learning more about the other characters in the story by consequence of those decisions which like could be a really interesting it's almost like a a renegade run of the game you know yeah. it's like what what does the game look like if i just invest in these skills what i also really love and it kind of reminds me of the um perk system and fallout is throughout the game you know you get experience just by completing miss missions and you can invest experience in different skills and it basically goes from like untrained trained advanced and master i think so you get like more abilities as you 
upgrade and they actually do like i was expecting it to be much more esoteric but the skills are pretty straightforward it's like three types of guns electronics hacking swimming which i still haven't found a use for uh and a few other things but you also find augmentations and what's really cool is they're just like these capsules where you find an augmentation and then you choose one of two augmentations that are in that capsule so so far i only have one and the choice and it was for my arms so it's like they're all kind of locked to a part of jc's body the augmentation that i got for jc's arms either can boost melee damage or allow me to push and pick up heavy objects oh cool um, which is like a really fun like the way the game lets you build jc like seemingly feels kind of limited at the start but by the end of the game when you have all these different augmentations and have chosen a very specific build it really does again allow you to reinforce the way you want to play the game mm -hmm. and that's like a really brilliant way to have the storytelling kind of tied to the mechanics you know i am playing a jc that is like not averse to conflict but it is not there just to be guns blazing so i'm going to try to take a stealthy approach yeah and having the ability to move heavy boxes sounds kind of innocuous but it allows me to actually stack things so i can go to parts of the map that otherwise would be inaccessible and just totally avoid entire rows of enemies mm. um which is so fun i mean it kind of goes back to you know a weird comparison but we just had our super mario all-stars bonus and like the design of letting a player break the ceiling of a level to go right to the warp pipe room it reminds me of that yeah but in like totally different style of game it's it's really impressive i was expecting it to like impress me and to have respect for the game but then recognize that it maybe hasn't like held up or aged well mm. and you know there are definitely things about it that are like glued to the year 2000 <laughs> that's kind of what makes it special and what makes it worth playing in some ways i think it's kind of required reading even though i'm like very early on i think even if you don't love it it's worth checking out just to understand where games kind of have come from since its existence because mm. it's so like ev this is like the velvet underground of influence like if you watch any like game designer interview like deus ex is gonna come up in some way <laughs> you know so yeah. I, i'm just glad i finally have context for it i'd be curious from you dear listener if you have any kind of like tentpole early PC games like this that you think we should check out also uh, now that we have the ability to via Steam Deck, I guess like as long as they run on Steam Deck, I'd be curious to know what else is kind of in this pantheon alongside things like Deus Ex and Half-Life. Yeah, I mean, Half-Life, uh, it's kind of ironic you mentioned that because in uh, a GDC talk with Warren Spector, he talks about the making of Deus Ex and how like it was really like they were not sure if it was going to be good at all for like most of the development, which is a classic story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially for these kinds of games, because as Warren Spector says, he's like, when you're making a game like this, it's not until all the systems are working in their own way that you can see how it comes together. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not really a central design. It's designed in so many different little ways that like it, it is the sum of like individual moments. Yeah. And in the talk he has on display in a slide, Half-Life, thief and Baldur's gate which i think are other you know tentpole games and he's like in any individual area our game like sucks compared to the like what <laughs> these three games are focusing on you yeah. know combat role-playing and stealth 
we're getting creamed. But the fact that our game is doing all three is what makes it great. Mm. Um, and, and that's like a really interesting perspective to have and totally true. I mean, that's the appeal of Deus Ex is not that it's a good shooter or that it's a good stealth game or that it's, you know, a, as deep of a role playing game as something like Baldur's Gate or Divinity. Yeah. But the fact that you're getting all three in one place is miraculous. Mm. Um, and the fact that those elements all work harmoniously that is what makes it worth playing. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, if you have other recommendations, I'm definitely, I'm definitely like in. I'm, I'm interested in seeing <laughs> this era of history. I mean, I think Half Life is a big one for us. That yeah, I've been told so that you can kind of play Black Mesa as like your experience with the first game, which is a, a fan made remake. Yeah, and I have Half Life Two. It's been waiting for me for over a decade now, so that will <laughs> definitely happen. But any other ones, we're open to recommendations. Yeah, uh, that's Deus Ex. That's Deus Ex. It's good. I'm gonna play. Surprise, it. surprise. I am so excited to hear your thoughts. It, it could go wildly one way or the other <laughs> still. I think if you're in the right mindset, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. I would say my advice is like, you might get like, you might feel like it's a brick wall early on, but like just try different stuff and see what is the most fun for you. Mm-hmm. The past couple of nights before going to sleep, I've just been like playing stuff on the switch for like 30 or 40 minutes recently. And just about every night for the past week, I've hovered over nice, the old Republic, which I feel like oh, is like in, yes. in this kind of same oh, yeah. vein early like, Bioware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I'll finally pull the trigger on that. That's another bonus I'd love to do. I feel like Kodor is very much proto mass effect, not yeah. to reduce it to that, but like you can tell mass effect was bubbling when you're playing Knights of the Republic. Yeah. The thing about that game, unfortunately, the, both of them is that I know the like big twist in both already. But that said, knowing the twist in something doesn't mean that uh, you won't enjoy the uh, 98 other hours that aren't twist yeah. related. <laughs> I, I played enough of of uh, the first Knights of the Republic to know that like it's not it's not banking on that alone. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's there's plenty to enjoy. And it, it's also like one of my favorite takes on Star Wars because it's not beholden to you knowing anything about star wars it feels like a very fully realized world in and of itself yeah so yeah it's it's awesome would love to play that again yeah i'm very interested in giving that a go maybe i'll do that as kind of like a precursor to uh jedi survivor coming out soon i I just remember there's one character in in the first knights of the republic that's a bounty hunter of course and uh everyone's totally afraid of him and uh if you if you like just try to talk to him he just starts counting down from five and you can keep like every time you try to say something else, he just keeps counting. And if you like let it go, he just completely destroys you. Really? And I just love that there's, there's early on, at least there's no way to deal with him. It's just like, yeah, you just shouldn't talk to him. <laughs> it's because I feel like in video game logic, like you're told that someone's powerful, but like, you know that you're going to be more powerful. And in the case of this character, it's like, no, he's just unstoppable. <laughs> he's trying to help you by giving you a countdown. Yeah, you're not listening. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I got. I, I would love to talk about Deus Ex again. That was very much just like a me excited that I like it moment in time. <laughs> but uh, I, I hope that this was enlightening in some way. Yeah, uh, it's like six bucks on Steam. So I'll probably pick it up uh, and play it a bit this week. I have the game of the year edition, which from what I know is essentially a patch. It's not like a, a different remaster or anything. Great. So, yeah, cool. That's it. Uh, I figured it out. PC gaming rules. I'm glad I have a Steam Deck. <laughs> Show over. Show over. That was all we needed to figure out. That was why we started to the Let's take one more break and then come back and talk about one more game, or I guess two more games. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds good technically. Bye. Bye bye. We're back. Hi. Hey. What a roller coaster this has been. We talked about corporations. <laughs> 
Deus Ex, uh-huh. the the murder of Sonic. I'm trying to find the thematic link. There's something here, but I digress. Yeah, uh, I think I think it is not to keep beating the dead horse, but I think it is the Shrekification of all of this. <laughs> Don't you think? I think you really hit the nail on the head right from the go. Because I would even argue. So look, look, this. If if you if you're looking at the chapter markers, we're talking about Resident Evil Four again. Uh, I would argue that there's been a Shrekification of Leon S. Kennedy. Oh yeah. What do you think the S stands for? It's been right in front of us all this it's, it's time. It's been right there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, right. when, when you're going running around the swamp and he's like, get out of my swamp. And he's shooting all the <laughs> villagers in the head. It's like, it's not your swamp, Leon. Just because your middle name is Shrek doesn't mean you own every swamp. Leon Shrek Kennedy. Leon Swamp Kennedy. <laughs> all right. What's up? What else? What else you got going on here with, with RE4? I'm excited to hear. Yeah. So, uh, look, I we talked about the remake last week um, mm-hmm. and... I had finished it in kind of like a whirlwind experience. I just like devoured the game faster than I think. I'm even, even I was... more impressed by that because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I w- I'm on chapter 10 currently. Yeah. And it's like, you're it's in the castle, pr- right? Still. I'm in the castle. So you're I, towards the end of act two. Yeah. I'm like, I guess about halfway through the game, if I yeah. had to guess. Yeah. And it's hard. It's like a pretty challenging game. Like Four is, I remember also being pretty challenging, but like, there was one room of the castle. I'll give you a hint if you know, uh, if you played the game, it has four bells in it. That <laughs> room took me like 10 tries and it is maybe currently like half of my playtime. Yeah. So I'm very impressed you just like did it all in yeah. one night. You got really rocked by the resource scarcity at that point. Yeah. It caught up with me. Yeah. yeah which I I found is an interesting thing with that game where at least in my, well, to be clear, I play the game twice all the way through now. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, you can see my second playthrough on Patreon right now. But what I found in both of those playthroughs is that chapters 8 and 13 are where the game is like, we're not giving you ammo anymore. <laughs> just absolutely not. Don't worry about it. I don't remember that happening in chapter 10, but now I'm going to keep an eye out for it the next time because I, I wonder I wonder if I was just being very diligent about saving stuff after my experience with chapter 8. I, I was oh, like entering that room i was doing okay in terms of resources but it, i was really beholden to the rng of what was dropped yeah because if i got like four drops of money i was fucked mm-hmm. like I, I told you before we started recording there was so that it's not only a spoiler that that room has two enemies that are especially powerful with with cat claws yeah um but they can't see they can only hear you so one strategy is to shoot one of the bells and they'll go running towards that. And then you have to hit them from the back to do any real damage. Cause that's right. where they're like, weird worm is yeah um the room is also full of like at least 30 just dudes with regular enemies which you need to yeah take out with your weapons which make noise so exactly so there there were at least three tries of that room where it ended with me one of the cat claw guys and zero resources and i mean like (laughs) i didn't even have my knife because it broke yeah and i just i was like this is now just waiting for godot with leon shrek kennedy and this cat claw guy one act off broadway yeah so again i'm impressed by your re4 abilities (laughs) yeah i i think it's worth reiterating a thing that i brought up last week um and probably in previous episodes but i remember when the wii version of resident evil 4 came out i played through that game and i don't remember how long it took me to do this but i played through that game like around 40 times um just continuing to do new game plus over and over and over and over again doing it on the different difficulty modes trying to unlock everything like there's a bunch there's a bunch of very cool things that you can unlock in that game if you can 
continue to like persevere and make your way through it in the different difficulty modes and getting certain letter grades and playing the mercenaries mode and the separate ways DLC and all of that stuff combined, you end up with things like a hand cannon with infinite ammo, which is like the most powerful gun in the game. Or a full suit of armor for Ashley. For Ashley, so she can't get picked up. Yeah. Uh, and can't get hurt yeah it's stuff like that uh you can get like uh, a gangster like uh 1930s chicago outfit for leon leon chicago kennedy along with like a <laughs> <laughs> which starts with s in this case and, yeah. <laughs> and also like a tommy Ew. gun with infinite ammo yeah. um all of that stuff is really cool and honestly the it gives you goals i think which is a really interesting thing about resident evil 4 specifically for me uh because that was the only resident evil game i had played at the time when it came out i think it's interesting and i've i talked about this a little bit last week that the game evolves the more you play it it starts off as this like you know survival horror action thing but then you beat it and the second time it's like almost a speedrun simulator where once you realize that the only thing they're grading you on is based on how quickly you make it through the game the next time your brain goes oh i'm going to see how quickly i can make it through especially knowing you get to keep all of your weapons and ammo and all of your items and equipment including all the upgrades that all those things have into your next run what that really means is like okay if you're starting out the game the second time with a fully upgraded pistol that means all of the villagers go down in essentially one well-placed shot to the head especially depending on what pistol you're using if you use one with like a lot of with a lot of like penetration damage specifically that means it'll just like completely circumvent the the scary worm zombie thing that's in their head and it it just won't even pop out so they really just go down in one hit and you just fly through the game that on top of things that you start to learn throughout more and more playthroughs about little interesting ways that you can kind of skip certain sections um if you watch the the video on our patreon you can see me skip the whole village fight for example right at the top of the game which is really interesting there are a couple things that i think make the game kind of blossom into this almost like it's the closest I think I'll ever get to speed running where I'm starting to clock all of these different time saving things so I can continue to get better as I continue to play through the game. I have had the most fascinating time, I think, applying what I knew about Resident Evil 4, the original into the remake now, because even just my new game plus playthrough of the remake felt to me and almost reminded me of what I had forgotten about the original, because I, I'll be honest, I, I remember that I played through that game again, like 40 ish times, I really don't remember a lot of that experience. And I think a lot of that has to do with like the time period in my life. It was like in high school, I was an insomniac and sleeping like two hours a night. Uh, I had a lot of other stuff that was undiagnosed that was going on at that time. Wasn't doing great. Not in a great place. Hyper fixating on Resident Evil 4, I think was an outlet for me. And then my brain was like, okay, we're going to forget about that entirely because that was obviously traumatic for you. But that having been said, playing through Resident Evil 4 remake twice now i'm starting to remember some of that experience playing through the original uh in a fond way to be clear not like and i'm digging up like yeah. horrible <laughs> memories way. i'm glad don't add that to the psychological horror already yeah exactly yeah. but I'm 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 starting to appreciate more and more what remake was able to pull off. I think now having played through the game twice and working on a third playthrough right now, which I'm very much taking my time with this time because my partner Persia wants to watch it because she likes watching Resident Evil games. So I'm like really taking my time doing everything on this on this uh, I guess third playthrough. I I feel like I can definitively say this is my favorite Resident Evil game. I think oh, yeah. I, I think I like it more than the original. And I think it might be like one of my favorite games like ever. Like That's I, amazing. the pull, the, the magnetic pull I feel to this game 
versus everything else that I have on my Steam Deck and my Switch and my Xbox and my PlayStation is unlike a thing I've felt in a long time, which maybe like Elden Ring is up there with like other games that like I felt compelled to only do that and nothing else. I'm feeling that a lot about Resident Evil 4. And I think it's even more interesting because when I think about the other games that I felt that pull towards like Elden Ring or Breath of the Wild or like a Skyrim or Oblivion, for example, these are all like multi hundred hour open ended RPGs that allow you to interact with the world in different ways and kind of like build your own character and do a bunch of interesting things with with that space. And there's a lot of player agency, and a lot of player choice. Whereas with Resident Evil 4 Remake, I am drawn to play the exact same eight hour story over and over again, which I think is a, a huge testament to how compelling and, and how well designed those eight hours are. And, and as I mentioned last week, one of my fears about Resident Evil 4 Remake is that the balance of the original is like it's like a tightrope walk, you know, like they they nailed it yeah. so perfectly. I don't think you would hear from so many people like me who played through the original as many times as I and many other people did, were they not to have totally fucking nailed the exact like parameters of how to make a game replayable, you know, and to have found as soon as I finished the game the first time that I wanted to jump into it a second time and then finish it a second time and thought, what if I did this a third time means that they've nailed it again. I just I'm, I'm totally blown away by it. But part of that process for me, at least in this past week, you know, kind of stepping back and saying, I can't just like swallow this game whole over and over and over again. I, I, I need to like take a step back and think about it a little bit more holistically. I've gone back and started playing the original also. So I've, uh, this week, although I've been playing Terra Nil and Dredge um, and the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, I do feel like when I think about this past week, it has just been Resident Evil 4 for me me uh that's like really all i remember i kind of i honestly until we sat down to start recording this episode i forgot that i played other video games except resident evil 4 <laughs> but i've been playing the original in two places which i think is interesting i've been playing it on the steam deck because some people in the discord recommended checking that out uh specifically because it has gyro control support um, oh yeah not built into the game but like one of the beautiful things about the steam deck that we talked about before and you've actually mentioned on the show already uh, or on this episode already is that you can go into community gamepad layouts which means that like you or I or anyone who is playing any game that's available on the Steam store can create our own control layouts and then upload them to Steam to allow that's other incredible. people to download those gamepad layouts and then play games that way. And that has enabled some games that like shouldn't be playable with the Steam Deck to be playable, for example. What that also enables in the case of Resident Evil 4 is adding gyro controls to that game, which brings it a lot closer to the Wii version, I think, than you can get outside of like emulating the Wii version or just playing it on the Nintendo Wii. And that experience has been really cool so far. I've been really enjoying playing Resident Evil 4, the original, completely earnestly for the first time in a long time. You and I checked it out like a year or two ago, I think, just to kind of like revisit. But uh, admittedly, I didn't get very far in because I found the controls to be really difficult to get used to having you know grown up on the Wii version essentially so I will just say kind of on the outset if you have a Steam Deck and you're interested in playing the original Resident Evil 4 that is absolutely the way to do it it is great the other thing that I've been trying is committing myself to really actually finish a full playthrough with the original controls and I've been doing that on the Switch version which uh, you and I got forever ago and that process, I think, has been really illuminating for me because I'm starting to enjoy it a lot more than I ever have before, uh, because usually what happens is I'll go in, I'll start playing that version with like the original controls and be like, I don't know, because if you don't know about this about Resident Evil 4, but, it, you know, it's tank controls. It's like you need to stop and aim and shoot. You need to press certain buttons to turn left or right. You can't just turn left or right. Normally, there's like a lot going on that's kind of hampering your ability to move throughout that world, even though Resident Evil 4 was built from the ground up to be a more action oriented and like exciting 
Eidetic version of Resident Evil 4, or sorry, of Resident Evil in a lot of ways, you know, kind of taking you out of the perspective of the uh, pre-rendered backgrounds and fixed camera angles and stuff with the tank controls. Also, you had a more over the shoulder, closer to what we consider to be like a triple A, quote unquote, like almost PlayStation Studio style game, but back in 2005 with tank controls also, uh, which is kind of like a weird unholy matrimony, I think. But what I found in committing myself to playing through the game that way is that I, I'm really opening my eyes to how brilliant a lot of the encounter design in that game is and how yeah. brilliant some of the locations and environments are because they're so well designed for the lack of mobility that you have. You know, you have more mobility than you've had in previous Resident Evil games, but still by modern standards, you really can't do a whole lot except like aim and shoot and hope to not die and turn around and run away a lot. Yeah, I so my uh, first time playing Resident Evil 4 was actually on the PS2. Um, mm. which for whatever reason, I remember people liking the GameCube version best. And then, you know, the Wii version with the motion controls was, was, uh, your muse eventually. Yeah. But playing on the PS2 and also having an experience, cause you know, my, I, I, at that point had had played one and two and three nemesis. So like, I'm, I was very familiar with like the style of tank control. So from, from my perspective, four was like, oh my God, I can breathe. Like this is not just like, <laughs> yes. you know, um, but I, I think there's what you were alluding to. There's a lot of intentionality in that design. The, the mm -hmm. lack of movement, even in the original four is not there because games weren't there yet. It's there to aid the horror and suspense. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's nice to you. It is built around that because you have the red laser on your pistol from the very beginning. So right. like there is actually, that's something you have to unlock in the remake because like by, by virtue of there being more mobility, they actually do rank up the challenge a bit, which is what you were saying with the encounter design. Yes. There's almost like an arcade booth stepping on the time crisis pedal house of the dead reload timing to when you aim and shoot in Resident Evil 4. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it works really well for that game. I guess, would you say that's sort of the definitive difference between the two is like just the design around mobility or have, having now played both versions multiple times, do you have like a clear idea of what they're doing independently from each other? Yeah, I, I think the big thing is is modernizing the movement and controls. Um, I, yeah. I think like even even if that was the only thing they had changed, I would be like, yeah, this is cool. But now now that now that I've played both, I think kind of in succession, my feeling is that if they had done that, what you would be left with is a bunch of encounters that are way too easy. And I think ramping up the difficulty and changing a lot of what was present in the original for the remake was definitely the right move to kind of account for those control changes. That said, though, the, the other stuff that they've changed in terms of like what encounters even exist, but also some of the story and narrative and character writing stuff, I think is all better in the remake than oh, it is yeah. in the original. You know, we talked a lot about Ashley last week and like the Ashley stuff is night and day by comparison. Absolutely. Yeah. Th that is definitely a, an issue with the original game yeah. um, in terms of how she's portrayed and handled. But yeah, I mean, I'm at a point like in not to spoil it, but in remake, I've really enjoyed this sort of developing trust between the two of them. Yeah, it's so cool to see. Yeah. And it, it also makes Ashley feel significantly more human. And that like there are moments where she's like, maybe I should just run away from all of this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, am I, you know, even though I know Leon can protect me, like and, and there's a I, I don't want to say too much, but there, all, all I'll say is there is a sequence replay as Ashley that you can then revisit that exact area as Leon. And it's so cool to get both perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that's weirdly also representative of the split of RE4. Like when you when you're in that area as Ashley, 
it's as close to survival horror and just pure horror as you can get. Yeah. And when you go back as Leon, it's like totally action and there to sort of like almost reward you for your curiosity and checking out that place again. Yeah. What was really fun, I learned on a new game plus playthrough is that if you remember one of the puzzles, one of the answers to one of the puzzles, you can skip that Ashley sequence entirely also. Oh, which, that's which is really funny. Um, I don't want to give that away, but uh, very silly. Yeah, I I love that sequence that really there are like two main parts of the remake that I'm like not thrilled about that I don't want to give away for spoiler. Like, I think I think they're just like story beats that I, I, I don't really like per se. But having these two moments that I would say amount to like 10 minutes of what is like a, an eight to in some case, like for me, my first playthrough was like closer to 17 hours, you know, like an eight to 17 hour experience having like 20 minutes of it that I'm like, eh, I don't like this that much. Really, uh, it, it's not even worth commenting on, I think, in some cases. I also think every Resident Evil game has a questionable half hour. Like they all have a moment yeah. where they jump the shark or do something that's like, huh? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of part, part of the course for the series. Yeah. And I mean that endearingly. But all in all, I, I I think the experience of playing through the game as quickly as possible the second time, like really armed with only my knowledge of the first playthrough was a really fascinating way to play a video game um, and not something that I experience very often or probably will experience very often in the future um, outside of playing Resident Evil 4 remake over and over again. But uh, <laughs> I, I think, as I mentioned before, it's like the closest I will ever get to speedrunning in earnest in some ways. And I feel so compelled to try and get some of the harder challenges done. Um, the thing is, there are a couple that are, I, I think, out of the realm of not possibility for me, but out of the realm of like desire for me. Um, for example, like there's there's one challenge in particular that involves getting an S plus rank uh, on the highest difficulty and you can only get an S plus rank if you're not doing new game plus. It means you need to start a completely fresh save file. So you need to do. Oh, it's like what I'm doing with maddening and three houses. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. You, you need to go in with all of the like basic stock stuff. You don't you have no boosts at all for you and you need to beat the game in like five hours or less <laughs> on the hardest difficulty. I, I think that room I mentioned took me five hours. So that, that's just. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's comfortable knowing something's just never going to happen. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling about it. But that said, the amount of weird time saving stuff, like being able to skip that Ashley sequence, yeah. is really fascinating. Or I, I've just been seeing videos. There are a couple of people on the internet who have been posting videos about places where they found really interesting time skips. For example, skipping that village sequence in the beginning. Uh, there's one bit in particular in the castle, which you might have done already, where you go you're like trying to collect these three heads for a statue and, yeah. and one of the heads you walk onto a bridge and the bridge lowers and you need to like fight a bunch of enemies before you can flip a switch and like raise the bridge again as soon as you walk into that room you can throw a grenade at the guy who hits the lever that's going to drop the bridge on you and you could just blow him up before he does it and then just skip that bit entirely like stuff like that they yeah. have built into the game i think on purpose knowing that people will discover it and start to proliferate that that information to allow more people to like finish the professional s plus run, for example not to get too into it again, but this all reminds me so much of Deus Ex's design, where like there are all these moments that feel like they're set scripted events that can be manipulated by player curiosity and yeah. experimentation, yeah. which is such a cool thing to do. Every instance of that that I found in Resident Evil 4 Remake, either seeing it on Twitter or like finding it by myself has been so rewarding and so interesting. And when I see the ones that other people have found, it just gets me more excited to try them again next time which is like the sign of the best kind of game design, I think. Yeah. And this is also like, I think the best case scenario for the AAA space as well. Like as we're this kind of I was about to say, yeah, 
like again, like I love I love Elden Ring. I think there's totally a place and should be a place for the giant open world uh blockbuster event. But like the fact that that was the expectation for 10 years, I think kind of made those games just unfinishable and eventually kind of stale yeah. or like they all kind of adhered to the same mold and like having a game that confidently knows how long it should be a, a very varied experience with the room for replaying and, and testing things out. Like the, the fact that there's a triple a game that is meant to be replayed in some ways, I think says everything. Yeah. It's shocking because, by itself. You know? right? yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is built. I, I think, Meant to be replayed and built to be replayed almost is like an interesting delineation to make also, right? Because look at something like The Last of Us, for example, like The Last of Us Part 1, uh, either the original PS3 release or the new PS5 release <laughs> in some yeah. ways. Like they're asking people to replay that game multiple times. But what are you getting out of that game that is like super different? outside of trying different encounters in different ways and like i'm gonna throw a bottle instead of a brick this time you know and see what that changes <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think in that case it's re-experiencing the story um and there is like that's kind of what i mean though that's 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 why i'm drilling down on this in particular is i feel like the last of us is a really great game to pair up against resident evil 4 remake in a lot of ways because the last of us by I've said on the record that I'm not a huge fan of like the gameplay in the first Last of Us. I like the story a lot. I just didn't like playing through the game. It's why I think the show was an interesting experience because it was like, oh, we're finally letting the Last of Us be the thing it always wanted to be. Whereas The Last <laughs> right, of Us Part right. 2, as you and AJ and I talked about on that bonus episode, I think leans harder into making more engaging and interesting like video game ass video game moments where you're able to come at encounters from different ways because Ellie has so much at her disposal by way of yeah. like creative both encounter solving but puzzle solving experiences that it makes for a really fascinating game whereas the last of us part one is a really interesting story and once i've seen that story i'm like less interested to re-experience that because there's so much gameplay that i'm not super thrilled about in between it whereas resident evil 4 remake is the best of both worlds in that case because the story is like very light touch it's very simple it's funny uh, playing it the third time with my partner, she was like, when does the story start? And we're like five chapters in, you know, <laughs> and I was like, honestly, you're seeing it. This is what they have on offer. As a huge fan of Resident Evil, I don't really think there is a story to follow. <laughs> I think like the most I would say about four is that I do think it does set up Leon in a somewhat interesting way to know that he is coming from like the trauma of two. Yeah. But that is not really explored that thoroughly in four. You yeah. just like, I think in the very beginning, like it is, I think there's something interesting. It, it, you know what it kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of Mad Max Fury Road, where it's like at that point, Max as a character has gone through so much shit. He is just ready for it. Yeah. Like he is feral and on autopilot. And I think, <laughs> you know, Leon for context in Resident Evil 2, the whole setup is that it's his first day, you know, on, on the police force. And that's when the breakout in Raccoon City happens. Mm -hmm. So he's sort of this like bright eyed, optimistic guy that gets like, his his you know reality crushed and has to handle this responsibility right um it's an interesting framing device and i think seeing it's almost kind of sarah connor e2 where like sarah connor in terminator one versus who she is in two such a cool character growth and yeah. i think leon or like samus throughout the course of yeah all the metroid stuff yeah so like seeing leon kind of go from like a, a bright-eyed youth to like this you know wisecracking ready for anything guy is fun yeah but i don't think you need that i don't think it's like betting on you knowing what he did and there's even a recap of like the events of two in the beginning of four yeah so. yeah it's it's really loose and there there is a character who shows up 
uh, in four who is like almost dependent on you knowing his relationship with Leon at a certain point. But honestly, you'll kind of pick up the vibes just based on how it goes. Also, there's a spinoff that actually explains their relationship even better. That is like not a thing that has been remade or ported anywhere, really. So (laughs) I don't I don't think the game even cares that much. If you know, I think you'll just kind of fill in the blanks in your head. Yeah, exactly. So I would say you can definitely start with the remake of four with no consequence, really. I think that's the other thing, too. Four was kind of meant to be like an entry point into the franchise, because at that point, the story had gone so off the rails, even even at that early stage in in this history, like because even Nemesis sort of wants you to know who Jill is and like, right, you're in this same setting as two what's interesting is that nemesis was supposed to be the spinoff and the original resident evil 3 was code veronica on the dreamcast oh i didn't know that then they flipped it and it was resident evil 3 became nemesis and then code veronica was like this kind of spinoff split off yeah which I, I, I want to play that one again because I played it on my PS4 on my old TV where the lighting made it like impossible to see anything. Mm. So playing it on the Dreamcast with proper lighting seems like the way to go with that game. So That's going to be so exciting. And that's starring Claire, who I think is underused in the Resident Evil history. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. I am curious to see where they go. Just to continue our conversation from last week, I'm curious to see where they go from here like uh, obvious as we already mentioned they're obviously making resident evil 9 but what do they do in terms of these remakes are they going to start dipping into things like code veronica and all these other spinoffs like the revelations games that are now no longer playable because they shut down the 3ds eShop. you know like do they do they find a way to port that stuff uh and, and remake that stuff or do they say like Resident Evil 5 has so many fucking issues and is such a deeply racist and troubling game that is there some way that we could remake this game and like clean up its act in a way yeah who knows i i have no idea because the thing the thing that is making me think they will do that is the fact that they're continuing to call these new games like numbered sequels right resident evil 7 biohazard resident evil 8 village resident evil 9 whatever i do think they want people to experience the whole story as silly as the story is in its like actual lineage from two through now but it does seem like they have a they have an interest in that kind of stuff I really wonder. Yeah, I, I don't I don't really know if remaking five is a good idea, to be honest. Like, I, I get where you're coming from, but I just wonder if it's like not really worth revisiting. I yeah, I don't think that it's a good idea either, but I think <laughs> the Capcom will do it is kind of where I'm at. In my opinion, the last the only one that I would maybe be interested in seeing remade is actually Code Veronica. Now that we're talking about this, like I do think that mm-hmm. that game, because it's on the Dreamcast, it's it's, of course, too ambitious for its own good. And I think uh <laughs> It's kind of like a five scenario where there are some like problematic elements of that game too, but I do think they were maybe onto something. And I think, you know, Claire is now in the remake verse with two. So mm-hmm. it'd be cool to give her like a starring role in some version of Code Veronica. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I think I think in my ideal world, four marks the end of the remakes, and now we just get like I mean, what would be interesting is like maybe, you know, new Resident Evil games that follow up from Village and Biohazard, but maybe like make a new, like a a different like AU route for After Four. Like maybe make like what could be like a different. Fuck RE5, me up, yeah, you know? I would be all about that. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean. I think if you were to go about remaking Five, it would be so different that it would be almost unrecognizable. Yeah, it's like how about not Chris and not here. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Like I, I think I'd be yeah. interested in that. Also, I just I I feel like. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but uh, just 
following the lineage of things you and I have already talked about in terms of Ashley's characterization in this game, it feels to me like they're almost setting up Ashley to be hypothetically a protagonist of future Resident Evil games, which I would be very interested in seeing how this experience kind of warps her brain in such a way where she's like, yes, sign me up for the horrible training that Leon S. Kennedy went through. I want to be just like him when I grow up, Uh, which is obviously, you know, tough, but uh, would be really fun because by the end of that game, you know, again, following the lineage of what we already said, by the end of that game, she's a much more confident person. And, And as I said last week, it becomes less of like, I'm trying to survive and more like I'm trying to survive. And I think Leon is the guy who's going to help me do that. And they're more of a team. You know, there, there's yeah. a lot of moments where they kind of like you need it, it feels like eco in that way where yeah. like they need each other to get through this. Yeah. Um, so I'm I I would love to see that. I think we, we've seen. Um, uh, oh, my God. What is her name? Uh, Ada. No, Ethan Winter's daughter. Oh, Rose. Yeah, yeah, I was. I still haven't played the DLC, so I'm open to like feeling my own way about it. But the reviews of that were disappointing to me because I was so excited. Like that that to me feels like it could have been like a future step for the series. Yeah, like setting up Rose as as the protagonist and like kind of having it be like I think the whole thing with that is she has sort of paranormal powers. Yeah, so it's like if I have magic powers in Resident Evil and it's like even more horror focused, that sounds sick. Yeah, like that sounds like such a cool direction direction to go in and they could still do that you know we'll see what happens but uh yeah yeah i i I would be curious to finally check that out also actually now that i think about it didn't they add a third person mode to that game also they did (laughs) which i'm still very curious how that works maybe i go back to resident evil village um but honestly i i really the the thing that i've learned in hanging out in the discord in the resident evil channel is i really need to revisit the two and three remakes i had a really hard time with the two remakes specifically the like gore of it all was actually a bit much for me which i know might be weird coming from me having played through four multiple times but no i get it It, it, it's a different type of like i think the gore in four is more almost evil dead sam raimi-esque whereas like the gore in two is like pretty personal in a way that's that's like and i think like it's it's a lot but i think two is even more like two feels closer to resident evil seven than uh four does where like four is has tense moments but it's it's an action game at its core i would say yeah and resident evil 2 remake is a horror game like they took some environments from 2 and just put them in the dark just because (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and i i really i i like the the way they characterized claire and leon like i think leon is like the guy i think he's the best resident evil character yeah in my opinion i'd be interested Um, to see if they bring him back in any way the the big thing that i forgot about with this game is that it takes place in like the late 90s early 2000s so leon has another like 20 years on him by the next time we see him if they bring him back at some point i also really like claire because i think she is like you know a lot of these characters are like on this ultra you know force police squad which you know has has its own issues obviously but you know they're kind of prepared to deal with an outbreak i think claire just being chris's sister who is seemingly like at home from college during break yeah like kind of having a more everyman like character yeah. Resident Evil. I, that's what I've always liked about Claire. And that was like, the thing about Ethan Winters that you and I yeah, right. lost our minds about was like in Resident Evil 7, he's going through this absolutely horrible, horrifying thing. And then in Resident Evil 8, it's happening to him again. But for some reason, he's quipping like he's Leon S. Kennedy. <laughs> I think with Ethan, they didn't figure out, like, is this guy going to join the B-movie team of all these characters or right. is he just the player vessel? Yes. And they kind of alternate between the two. And it's very strange. Yeah, it's it's I think I think the worst part about Resident Evil 8, which is a game that I love. <laughs> 
is Ethan Winters. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I think, um, again, I think having seven, especially like the, the first hour of Biohazard is maybe my favorite Resident Evil game. Like that opening is so good. Mm. Uh, and I think it does kind of lose something when it becomes more. It's almost the opposite of four where it's like that game is at its best when you are the most powerless and you're just like navigating around the house in yeah. a PT kind of way. Yeah. And Resident Evil 2 remake is actually a nice middle ground where it's like you do have tools, but man, do you have to, even more than four? You have to really like choose when you want to use a gun at all like right. just run most of the time yeah because i i remember my my brief experience with the two remake is like each zombie takes six to eight bullets yeah to down even if you're shooting them like directly in the head at point blank yeah like they just don't go down so you're yeah your resource scarcity is is ratcheted way up in that game i think once i'm done with the remake of four i imagine it will probably be amongst my favorites and i think it's definitely the most fun of all of them i think it's like the easiest to recommend i think whether or not it's my favorite or the one i think is the best really depends on like what what type of resident evil experience you're looking for yeah because i think like four and four remake feel like a best of it's like you got the horror and the survival horror resource management but also it's like so fun and so action focused mm-hmm. um and then you have the more horror centric stuff like uh the classic games like one and two the two remake and biohazard i also think village is a nice everything i think that's actually the middle ground yeah one of my favorites still though is the first remake the the gamecube remake of the first game i think is like my favorite execution of the classic resident evil style yeah because they take full advantage of like okay if we're doing tank controls and fixed camera angles like it, it feels so cinematic for that style of game i'll be curious to see if they try and remake that game in, in, in this new style <laughs> yeah i mean yeah that that remake on the gamecube i don't think counts in terms of the lineage that they've been doing with this new stuff with, with two no. three and four and it, I, it is be... it is kind of like an outlier in like because there's sort of the classic style games yeah and then there's like four and then the five and six revelations and now the modern era right and the gamecube remake of the first game is like kind of in its own bubble that's what i mean like yeah yeah i I think remaking a remake might be a step too far for me to to endorse that but i'd be i don't think it'd be remaking the gamecube remake i think it'd be remaking the first game but in this oh i see i see i see i misunderstood what you were saying yeah i mean i'd be curious to see how that is because in the mansion is so iconic it would be fun to see it in this way but um i just think the focus of the first game is so much more about puzzle and horror that i wonder if like you would you would be taking that out by making it Mm. more like four yeah Um, true but i digress there's i think all this to say there are a lot of options for what they do going forward i think they have a lot to choose from yeah yeah i look resident evil 4 remake i love it so much uh i've played it a lot i have (laughs) bought it three times already i have it on xbox and playstation and steam deck here's what i'll say about the steam deck version yeah let's hear it it runs pretty well like it it runs fine it looks good uh you can go online and find you know lists of settings that people have figured out to make it like look good and run at 60 frames per second i think just continuing the lineage of the re engine that capcom has built being like maybe the most miraculous engine i've ever seen in terms of its (laughs) extensibility and its ability to run on fucking everything for real um including like the switch with uh with monster hunter what engine is, yeah do they also use re engine for monster hunter yeah yeah it's it's this is like doom levels of optimization for everything yeah it's, like, sho- feel it's like, shocking yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. Cap- capcom just really like nailed it with that as they're nailing everything they nailed it with the engine that they're building their games in as well <laughs> um that said the thing about the steam version or the steam deck version for me is 
Uh, first of all, my Steam Deck sounds like a jet engine whenever I'm playing it, <laughs> and it eats through battery. In like, it'll play the game for like an hour and a half before the, the Steam Deck just turns off, uh, yeah. which is a little bit of a bummer. And also, as much as I like playing things on the Steam Deck, that the the way the buttons are laid out doesn't feel conducive for Resident Evil 4 remake for some reason. So I'm I'm having a harder time with it than I I've seen some really glowing stuff about it. I just want to kind of temper expectations a little bit that I I'm finding it to be a little bit less than what I was hoping for based on some of the praise I'd seen. It's actually one of the better uses of the PS5 control I've I've experienced. Yeah. So I, I think if you if you if you have a PS5, I would recommend playing it there. But like I'm glad it's available everywhere. Yes. So I think if like you can only play it on Steam, it sounds like you can make that work in your own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not unplayable on Steam Deck by any stretch of the imagination. It's just of the three versions of it that I've purchased, <laughs> uh, my least favorite. Of uh, what is an incredible game that I'm playing it on Xbox mainly. Um, the Elite controller is really wonderful for it, just because oh, yeah. of the back paddles and stuff. Um, but what I have played of it on PS5 has been great. Um, I'm going to be playing through it again, I think, for footage capture because I want it to be like really high def. But man, that game is good. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. I'm I'm excited to see it through and and get to your level eventually. Uh, over time. Yeah, I've I mean, been I've been taking a slow because I think my for whatever reason like my current interest is just checking out all these visual novels i picked up in the murder of sonic the hedgehog uh but i am really enjoying kind of savoring resident evil remake i'm like you though usually when i find a game i like like paranormal site i devoured in like a night yeah so i i get it um but yeah. I'm, I'm i'm enjoying taking my time with it yeah I, th- I i thought i was taking my time with it on my first playthrough and then i finished it in two days so. <laughs> um which is funny because I did most of the stuff like my my playtime was still like 17 hours ish and I did pretty much every side quest except for a couple. There are a couple that I didn't even know existed until my second run where I was like, oh, shit, where I did. I didn't even see this blue note the first time. But uh, anyway, more more anyway. on that later. Probably I'll probably talk about Resident Evil 4 again at some point if I was to guess. Yeah. Any final thoughts on our, our friend Leon Shrek Kennedy and, and Ashley, <laughs> Ashley, the ogre, Ashley, the ogre Graham. <laughs> No, not really. I look, I I just I just think it's a spectacular game. I think it is uh probably going to become one of my favorite games of all time uh, if it's not already on that list. I just I just can't believe that they were able to take a thing I loved so much and made it better yeah. in almost every way. At least for me. I know I know that there are people who feel differently about that. Um of course, but, but, but yeah. in for me personally, I think that this is an improvement in just about every way. Yeah, I mean, especially cuz I was coming from a slightly more skeptical angle, I I also feel that way. I think by the end I'll I'll probably think it is the best overall Resident Evil game yeah. and the best version of 4. I do miss in the original, and this is a thing I totally forgot about until I, I, I started playing it again on Switch, I do miss that enemies, uh, like the big bosses, the big bads, start to hack into your uh, your radio and start, like, radioing you with yeah. increasing frequency. The fact that, like, what's his name, Ramon, who is, like, the, the kind of uh, Napoleon-esque like king of the castle uh just starts like calling you on the radio over and over again to taunt you is so funny they they have a little bit of that in the remake but the idea that he's just patched directly into your radio is hilarious in that game yeah i i do love those moments there's a lot and that's where a lot of the camp is um, yeah. in like leon's interactions with like the the ball it's very like metal gear solid but like even more comedic yeah 
awesome i do i think they i think they ratcheted up the horror and the action in in the remake and didn't really change leon at all which almost in some ways makes him even campier than he was in the original because at least like the enemies and some of the other people in the game were kind of matching leon's level of camp so the whole game was campy and now it's just kind of leon is campy yeah i love uh, that Ramon is actually like much scarier in this one. Yeah, I you know, think so like, too. I mean, he still has like kind of a, you know, air to him, but I think he is more intimidating than he is in the second. Like, I think Leon is like not really scared of him at all for most. Yeah. You know, he's the one he says, no thanks, bro, to yeah. in the original. <laughs> Um, Although I do appreciate Leon. There's a moment I just had where like I fell into this pit. That's clearly like a pit Ramon throws people he doesn't like into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's all these spikes and bodies on the spikes. Right. And Leon goes, talk about sticking the landing. Yeah. To like a corpse. <laughs> corpse yeah. It's so good. It's a great I moment. really needed that because that was like a very dark moment of the game. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad Leon is like taking the best approach at being in multiple Resident Evil games. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Yeah. Which I guess, honestly, now that we've said that, speaks a lot to Ethan Winter's growth over the course of seven and eight. True. Yeah. He just wasn't quite as witty as Leon. He was like, yeah. Talk about a witch and and th- talk about landing on a spike. <laughs> talk about um. <laughs> so 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 what if you're tall, Lady D? Uh, talk about a swamp in the glass. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, should we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Into the cast that online is your hub for everything, places to listen to and review the show. Like we said, if you want to review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be sick. That would really help us. Uh, also links to the Patreon at Into the Cast Online. Leave a comment on Spotify if you feel yeah. like it. I, I am <laughs> I consistently amazed that that's an option now. Every once in a while, I will put a poll on an episode just because I think it's funny that they let me do that. So uh, maybe just check that out. Check it out. It's a cool spot. Um, <laughs> yeah, this month's bonus. We re- we already announced all the Patreon stuff for this month, but this month's bonus for everyone is going to be Metroid Prime. I'm very, very excited to finally start that. Yeah. Um, I was going to like the other night, but I was like, I need to, I need to see through the murder of Sonic the Hedgehog before <laughs> I do anything else. Yeah. I'm um, only like an hour into the Metroid Prime remake, but uh, it is phenomenal already. So I'm very excited for that. We have our bonus set for next month. I'm going to wait to reveal that one, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'm excited. I- I'm glad we're starting to plan them in advance. It's kind of fun. Like, I-, I like being open enough where we can see where our like, interest is kind of guiding us but Mm -hmm. it is cool to have like assigned assignments throughout the year yeah yeah so that's all really exciting anything else you want to you want to highlight stuff you're excited about there's a lot of games coming out you know just in the next few months that i'm pumped for yeah uh oh man it's it's the second of april the day that we're recording this um the next thing that i'm really interested in is tron identity which is coming (laughs) out for the switch which is i don't know why but seems to be like a visual novel adventure game (laughs) set in the world of tron specifically what it seems like tron legacy which was like the i think in in some ways well received and poorly received revitalization of tron as a franchise uh which i did watch last night to prep myself for (laughs) tron identity um and you know what i'll say about tron legacy it's fine I think yeah. I think it's more it's more disappointing that it doesn't hit harder because it feels like it has all the components of a movie that should be great. It is so beautiful. Obviously, the Daft Punk soundtrack became yeah. like a, a like a cultural touchstone in a lot of ways. But even like the return of Jeff Bridges yeah. in the lead role, the the guy who who plays his son, who is the lead of the movie, is like pretty good. I don't know where that guy went. Martin Sheen with like one of his best most unhinged performances maybe ever really fun stuff in that movie. And it's weird 
how it kind of landed with like a wet fart. Like it just like I feel like I feel like people didn't like it. And I kind of understand why, because even watching it and being like, wow, I love this and this and this and this and this. I think the movie is just OK. So I'm interested to see this video game. Yeah. Have you seen the original Tron? I have. Yeah. Either unfortunately and or thankfully, my only Tron experience is with Kingdom Hearts 2. So I, I need Perfect. to do my homework and watch both. Films. No, I think that's enough, actually. <laughs> Oh, where the fuck is Goofy when I'm playing <laughs> visual novel? Tron um, Legacy, you brought back everyone except Goofy. Where the hell is Roxas? Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening into the cast of online. We love you. Do you have any games you're excited about, Steven? Advance Wars 1 plus 2 is coming out this month. Is that April? Yeah, it's on the 21st. Yeah, for this month, uh, Advance Wars is, is what I'm most excited about. Actually, it's very soon. It's very close to my birthday. So that'll be a gift I get for myself. Um, nice. May, obviously Zelda. I'm at least curious about the System Shock remake. Now that I'm kind of mm. getting into PC history, System Shock is another big one. Yeah. Um, and I believe that shares some development uh, staff with Deus Ex as well. Oh, that's cool. um, June is the big month, though, because that is Street Fighter VI, Final Fantasy XVI, and a few other games. That it's just going to be like a, a wild month. Yeah. But again, uh, we never really know. Like, I, I stuff just comes out. You know. You never know when Sonic the Hedgehog is going to get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Garbage. Got online.